Greetings, this is the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan. We're up to episode 44, and today my guest is architect and designer Jim Wagner. Golf courses don't come with end credits or appendices. We usually know the name of the architect or firm that designed the course we're playing, and even this is a recent development compared to previous eras, but we leave it at that without considering the long list of other people who helped create it. Golf design is always a collaboration of visions and specialties. One of golf's great modern collaborations is between Gil Hans and Jim Wagner. Even though Wagner's name isn't on the company's stationery and he rarely gets co-equal billing, he's been Hans's design and business partner for over 20 years and is equally responsible for making the courses that have placed Hans' golf design at the top of the golf architecture pyramid. Of course, this doesn't tell the whole story. Wagner is the head of Caveman Construction, the merry band of design artisans who work the dirt and shape the features on all Hans' projects. Wagner is careful to give them credit for their various talents, and together they're the backbone that led to the success of the Olympic course in Rio, Streamsong Black, the Pinehurst No. 4 renovation, the new Uhupi Match Club in Georgia, the masterful restorations of Marion, Wingfoot, Oakland Hills, Sleepy Hollow, Southern Hills, and on and on. I would love to get Gil Hans on the podcast to talk about golf and design, and hope to at some point in the future, but I thought it would be even more interesting to have Jim Wagner come on the show and to get his heretofore unheard of musings and insights. Wagner doesn't do a lot of media. I'd heard he was a real character, though, and I reached out to some people who do know him to find out what I could. To a person, <laughs> when they heard he was coming on, they just laughed and said things like, oh boy, and this'll be good, and that he was a jokester and not PC, and he liked to bust his buddy's balls. Frankly, it didn't do too much to prepare me for the talk. In fact, I started to get pretty nervous, wondering if I was going to have to try to keep up with a Robin Williams or, or be ready to get roasted by Don Rickles. But it turned out to be a good and brisk discussion, and we actually got pretty deep into golf. Wagner is considered by his peers to be one of the preeminent and most talented designers, shapers, and construction specialists in all of golf. He's also a great golf mind and one hell of a fun person to talk to. So let's get it on. Here's me and the original caveman. Jim Wagner. Thanks for taking the time, first of all. I know you don't do this very often. Sure. No, no, no issues whatsoever. It gets me away from trying to figure out how to read French. <laughs> all right you have to explain that <laughs> yeah we're getting uh for our job in france we're getting quotes and things like that back from uh contractors etc and uh they send it all in french so it's kind of a crapshoot you mean they don't just kind of bend over backward and cater to our american language uh no no why, why would they do that <laughs> no of course they don't when you go to france they don't go out of even if they speak english they don't they don't tell you that that they do <laughs> i know it, it's crazy it's crazy and what somebody just said this to me the other day because we were talking about it and they're like you know Patton had that famous quote i'd rather have a line of russians in uh front of me than a line of french behind me that's awesome <laughs> that's such a good, <laughs> good line <laughs> I don't. I, I love. I've been to France. I love going there. But you know, I'd like if you could just remove the the people, some of the people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe they need to build a wall. Yeah, there you go. 
<laughs> uh, funny stuff. So tell me a little well, bit more I, about. I got a, I got a question to start. Sure. What does feed the ball mean? Because that, that, it, it's golf related, but feed the ball, that's like a basketball quote. Okay, so you're saying like if there's a, a guy with a hot hand, you want to feed him the ball. Yeah, you feed, want to feed keep him sh- the ball. Yeah, yeah let him ball. shoot. Yeah, yeah feed a him shooter. The ball. Yeah. Well, this, you'll appreciate this. You and Gil build some of the most interesting uh, greens and green complexes. The coolest thing in golf to me is when you are playing a golf course and you see when you start to read the ground contour and you see a pin maybe in one section of the green, but you know you've got to play to a different section of the green and feed the ball down off a contour down to the hole. So it okay, kind of cool. denotes link style golf, playing the ball along the, uh, along the ground. Uh, I mean, to me, that's the essence of golf is the ball rolling on the ground. So feed the ball kind of, it wants to embrace that philosophy of using contour and, and seeing golf in a little bit more of a creative way. Yeah, cool, cool. No, that, that makes sense. You're like George Thomas, right? Didn't he say that? That he thought the most interesting thing in golf was uh, the player watching the ball uh, move across the ground and work its way towards the pin. Yeah, I, me, me and George, we're just alike, me and George Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got a lot in common. Right, right. So uh, just as a side note, you're you're not at the uh, golf industry show. I, I take it you're kind of the, the person that wouldn't want even though I don't know you that well, they, that's really not your scene. Am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I've gone to the the, uh, the golf industry show before, and I, I, I kind of get a chuckle out of it. And, you know, uh, and, and I, I understand it's a professional thing, you know, but you have all the superintendents together, which is great. It's a ton of fun. You know, I know a lot of those guys. They're all great people. And, you know, they go to the class, the classroom and are, you know, continuing further education and, and all that good stuff, which, which is a huge thing. Uh, but then, of course, they have the show, you know, the floor show where they have, you know, sprayers and airifiers and all that good stuff out there. And all the manufacturers and suppliers are trying to hock you their goods. But all the superintendents and everybody attending, they're all dressed up. Right. They have ties on and suit coats. Yeah, and some of them and, are wearing, uh, other guys are wearing plaid blazers. Exactly. Well, you have that too. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've got, uh, so you have all that stuff set up and, uh, you know, some, uh, different areas like the, the Long Island Association, they're all wearing the same outfit. They have the same tie on. You How know? Cute. So I, 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 I kind of, I kind of find it funny, you know, as, uh, as part of it. And then they all go out at night, you know, and you know what happens at night at those shows. It was, you know, a lot of uh, fun extracurricular mm-hmm. activity happening and they still have all their, their same attire on. <laughs> Just in case they get separated, the, the, the hostess can, you know, guide people back together. Guide them too. But, but you're right about that. I mean, it, it's, it takes a lot of time. Uh, you know, it, it's a week out. I personally rather stay away from that, but you're right. I'd rather, you know, stay out of that light. Uh, again, I know a lot of those guys, they're a ton of fun, but it's just, it, it's not, it's not my scene. It's not my scene in a sense as well that, you know, we spend so much time traveling, you know, it, it, you know, I leave Monday, I come back Friday almost every week of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if there's any downtime, if I'm going to take that time to go to the show, really, quite frankly, I'd much rather just come home, you know, spend time at home relax see my wife you know all that good stuff that goes with it so it doesn't seem like you're in a position in your career right now where you need to go networking and you know shaking hands and going out for drinks with guys you know you're people will come to you (laughs) well you're right about that in a sense i mean we don't think about it that way but 
that does happen. You know, a, a lot of these people, you know, reach out and we have separate conversations with them and things like that, you know, and, and that's just really from garnering relationships from all of our projects, you know, whether it's the Rainbird guys that you meet and you know, if, if we need something or want something special or need to contact those guys or have a job that works for them. And it's the same thing with Toro and you can go right down the line with everybody is that we have numbers that we can just call these guys directly. And it's, it's, it makes life just a, a lot easier. Uh, but you know, a lot of it is, is probably because of the, the amount of work that we're doing and where we are in our careers. But we also think that hopefully we're somewhat fun people. <laughs> so <laughs> it becomes more of a, you know, a, a friendship and it, it, that, and then the work stuff comes second, uh, is kind of what we're hoping, yeah. you know, is going on. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, we, we, we are in that, that situation, which does make it a whole heck of a lot easier. For sure. So, I know. So Gil is a member of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And I, I want to ask you what your opinion is of that organization. And the reason I'm asking is because you do you work very closely with a lot of guys who are who are coming into the industry. I'm not I don't want to say they're young, but maybe under 40, a lot of your shapers mm -hmm. and the people you work with. And it, it doesn't seem to me that joining that organization is that important to many of them. I, I So I'm sensing sort of a generational shift in how. Uh, does young designers view that type of an organization? Uh, what's your thinking about, you know, the ASGCA? I mean, I, I think all those sorts of associations are great, right? Uh, the Architects uh, Association, the Superintendents Association, the Pros Association, you know, all those associations and organizations are great. Uh, they do a great job. You know, they continue the education. You know, everything they do is, uh, is top notch. Uh, from our standpoint, at least from my personal standpoint of things, is Gil's a member. You know, he gets involved uh, as he can based on our work. But it's just there, there's a lot happening uh, just with us in the work that we're doing. Uh, and we're intentionally small firm. So most of my time is dedicated towards making sure that all of our projects and everything like that are running smoothly and accordingly. So with Gil being a member, you know, that kind of, you know, takes the lead for us as a company. Uh, the young guys, I think from a young guy's standpoint, it's just that they may just not be there in their career as of yet. You know, there's there's a lot to learn uh, in order just to become a member of the society. Uh, and, that, and that's a good, you know, a good thing. But, you know, these guys, it, it just, golf is a weird thing. Golf course architecture, golf course construction, just in the sense that, Every job you go to is a brand new start. You know, you have to, all the problem solving and things like that are, are totally different than the prior job, okay? And you have to gain, you know, uh, the respect of the client, of the people you're working with. But also each job is totally, totally different than the last job. And it, it takes a long period of time, you know. It's not five years, it could be 10. It could be 15 years, of just working on different sites, being a part of different projects before you get to the point where you have the knowledge to be able to do stuff on your own. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's a lot of stuff that, I mean, the young guys, there's a lot of young guys out there and we have a lot that work for us that are extremely interested in seeing and doing as much as they possibly can. And I'm sure there's, there's young guys out there that feel that they are already there and accomplished because they've worked on, on a couple big projects. 
and, and they probably do. They probably have the background and the abilities, but until you're out there and you know it all and the buck stops at when yourself. When you're calling the shots. Decisions. Yeah. Yeah, th that's, that's the biggest thing uh, in my mind because it, if you're the one that screws up, and a lot of our guys that have worked with us uh, have gone on and trying to do their own stuff. And, you know, if you're the one, anybody can say they're putting together a budget, okay? <laughs> right? To build mm -hmm. a golf course. But if you're the one that's guaranteeing that that's what the price is going to be or within some sort of contingency that that's what it's going to cost, uh, and if you screw up, well, the finger is being pointed back at yourself. You know, you better have a, a huge uh, professional liability insurance to cover a million-dollar shortfall. <laughs> and a million-dollar shortfall, believe me, is not that hard to uh, to miss. Well, now you're scaring you know? everybody who's listening, all, all your employees. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know. They, they no, I'm sure they know. It. Yeah, you know, and I think everybody gets it as they go along and they see what can happen. I mean, anything can happen that you that you may not even think of. I mean, just the stuff we've been involved in in 25 years. I mean, take a look at Resta Canyon. You're right. You know, Resta yeah. Canyon dry. It hardly ever rains out there. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, one fall you or uh, late summer or spring, I forget exactly when it was, you have, you know, uh, a fire that ravages the entire area and everything that is, you know, up in the hillside that all bleeds down onto uh, the property for Rusty Kent. You have a wash that ran down the middle that's been that way and developed over hundreds of years, which is 20 feet wide, and that's supposed to carry any kind of water that comes rushing down through the property. That's all based on the vegetation that's up in those hills. Mm -hmm. Vegetation burns, right? Well... Next thing you know, you get heavy rains up there. An avalanche. Uh, freak storm. Yeah, and all that dirt and that muck and that silt is coming ripping down through your property, and you lose three golf holes. Now, that is post, and that's, you know, uh, kind of an extreme situation when you're looking at it, uh, and that's kind of an act of God for the most part. But, you know, that could happen at any point in time. You know, you hear horror stories about, you know, uh, rainfall and things like that, that wash holes away or, you know, uh, that ocean trails out in, uh, California that the 18th hole slid into the water. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and who knows, who knows the reason behind that? Some people say it was a sewer line that, that got compromised during construction, but imagine that. More the Just hand of man. Or the hand of man. Exactly. So there's a lot of things that can happen and you need to have those experiences and and lay awake at night. You know, the hardest part is when you do something on a job. It could be anything. It could be a, a poor green construction. It could be wondering if you have a proper, you know, compaction underneath a green or if the drainage is going to work. You know, there, there's hundreds of things out there. And you're the one that is lying awake at night, you know, uh, not able to sleep because you're worried about what's happening. Well, I can guarantee you that you're not going to make that mistake or that compromise again. Uh, and like I tell all of our guys, you have to run from the police to know that you don't want to run from the police. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> that's kind of the way it works. So, you know, kind of wrapping this all up, Derek, and, and throwing it, you know, back towards the original question is, is that I'm not sure that they're they're saying that they're not going to join or they may be saying that they don't want to join or it's not for them or whatever it is. But. You know, the bottom line may just be that, you know, it's a good organization for them. They just, you know, maybe have not gotten that far yet uh, and they'd want to join it. Yeah. 
And, you know, I wouldn't hold that, you know, against them if they didn't want to join. I guess the, I guess the other question to where to look at that is, is, is what does that organization really do? Uh, and, and, and I know there's a million ways to answer that. I don't want to go too far down sure. that line, but there, maybe there's the perception of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's really an organization where that helps promote itself, you know, just to get, sure. to get guys jobs and, and they're sure. to align contractors up and supply companies and everything. And, and maybe yep. that's a little distasteful for a, a younger generation who has a different outlook on what the golf business ideally could be. No, you, 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 you could be a hundred percent right about that. You know, that, you know, what, what do they do? I don't know because I've never really researched it that much uh, to see what they do. Uh, I think probably the one benefit uh, of it is just the continuing education and the network that they provide one another uh, is probably the answer you would get from those guys. But you're right. If they're just promoting themselves and they're just promoting what uh, is good for them as a collective group and not golf course architecture in general then really what are they doing, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, we, we could say that for, like, the PGA Tour, <laughs> right? Good point. You know, any TPC job that, you know, gets a renovation, you know, project or a new one, you know, usually comes along with a uh, consultant who's a member of the uh, PGA Tour or was a member of the PGA Tour. You know, why is that? Uh, you know, they like to give back to, you know, the players and, you know, it's a, probably not that much different with the, uh, with the, uh, architect society, you know, mm. maybe any group in general, right? Yeah. Sort of like a professional nepotism, just a, a feedback loop that they like to stay within. It, but yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I asked Kyle France that, that question about joining yeah. the ASGCA and he looked at me like I had you know, sprouted horns. He's like, well, I've never thought about that for one second. It never crossed yeah. my mind. That, that's interesting. He's, ne he's well. He's never thought about joining it, or he's never thought about the society and, and I, any kind of benefit. I think. He, I think his point was he never thought about joining it. It, just, it okay. seemed like he had no interest in it. Yeah, so, I guess I could, maybe I'm assuming. I'm assuming too much that other guys that you work with may, might fall into that line of thinking. I mean, they they could. I mean, that's an interesting question with Kyle, and you know, Kyle always looks at you funny, but. That's uh, true. Anytime maybe I, maybe I was misreading him. <laughs> but no, you're, you're you're right in that regard. But that that would be the, my follow up question to him, and I'll ask him uh, the next time I chat with him and give him a hard time. Is like, what's the reason he uh, didn't think about joining? Did he not think about joining because he doesn't feel that they would provide anything for him, or is it that he didn't feel like he didn't think about joining because maybe he doesn't feel he's as you know far along as maybe he needs to be in order to pass the criteria to get into the association mm -hmm. uh not that not that either is good or bad and believe me like i said before i understand and totally get why people don't want to be uh, members of uh organizations like that you know there's a lot of people that don't want to be members of fraternities and schools right yeah it's 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 all part of it the nepotism thing uh is it any different than you know, politics, is it any different than uh, coaches, NFL, NBA, you know, Major League Baseball? It's all kind of the yeah, same. I mean, you know? for some people, I think it's, you know, we, I spend enough time around people in my own industry and, and I don't want to like get on a plane and go to a meeting and have to put on a blazer or a certain shirt and, and spend more time with people in my business. Yep. yep. Cultural. Uh, but, yeah. And, ju and just think about where we're kind of going with this. And you can say, listen... Look at any any sports, uh, you know, take basketball or football or whatever, and you can say, listen, there's there, there's guys that make mistakes. 
by hiring the same people over and over again as coaches, right? They're a coach of one team, they move on, they fail there, they go to another team, they fail, right? That happens more times than not. And as opposed to, you know, taking a chance on the younger guys. And this is what a lot of the younger guys could be saying. I mean, I'm from Philadelphia originally. Uh, and I take a look at the, like, say the Eagles. Okay. Right. Last year they won the Super Bowl with a second year head coach. Now, granted, that head coach worked his way up through the ranks. You know, he was a player, assistant coach, offensive coordinator, et cetera, and then becomes a head coach. Really fresh, hadn't been a head coach anyplace else. And he goes on to develop a team, different thought process, and that team ends up being, you know, uh, a champion. Uh, as opposed to somebody else that may go out and you know bring in another uh, head coach without any uh, with you know head coaching experience, and they go you know eight and eight. So there's something to be said for that. You can equate that to what we're, we're chatting about now. That if a client is looking for somebody to come in and do the work, do they just want to go back through you know the household names that are out there, or people that are a member of said fraternity? Uh, and bring those in, or they as owners, are they looking to find somebody that has a fresh approach, uh, something, you know, new and exciting, or just a different name that's, you know, part of the equation? Yeah. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. it, Innovation only happens once, you know, and the other thing you're saying, like, there is a lot of retread coaching hires in professional sports and college sports, too, I guess, too. The other side of it is, with some team like the Rams, they hire Sean McVay, and which yep. is kind of an innovation, and he takes a, a terrible team and instantly turns them around, gets them to the Super Bowl, and that's the innovation. But then people just start following that innovation. So there's probably a trend at one point where you want to stick with an established coach, you want somebody with a coaching experience, and that model looks great to everybody, and they follow that. And then there's somebody a burst of innovation somewhere, and now everybody's going to kind of jump onto that. And the same is could happen in golf course architecture. I could see how if somebody, if one of the guys that you work for were to be given a great site somewhere and build a great golf course and it's financially successful and gets accolades up up the rear that's going to that would blow the doors off the thing for a bunch of other young guys cuz other developers would would say hey so you know that's a model that works i can do this yep, yep. no you you're absolutely correct about that and you know we we may have been seeing that you know through the renaissance of golf course architecture over the past you know, 30 years, whatever we want to say, you know, with the likes of uh, Pete Dye and Tom Doak and Bill and Ben and Gill and stuff like that, that, you know, are guys that, you know, spend a majority of their time in the field. Uh, as to what it was before, that became the innovation. And now there's a group of people that are part of that tree that are doing the same thing. Uh, but you're right, you know, once somebody gets a chance to, you know, do that golf course, whoever it may be, then yeah, it's it can definitely open up the doors for the younger, you know, group of people to come in and start taking over and doing jobs. Most likely, it probably won't be a great site. Most likely, it'll probably be, a, you know, a shit site. And then, what'll, yeah, and then what'll happen is, is somebody will look at that or, or developers will have looked at that and said, I couldn't do anything with that site. It was just such shit. I don't know how this young guy came in and was able to turn it into that, you know. Uh, and maybe some of those other guys don't have to take that work because, you know, of who they are and where they are in their career. But somebody young is going to take that chance and may do something great with it. But you're, you're part of your question and, and comment, you know, touched on something that a lot of people don't really understand. 
you know, there's a lot of websites out there that you can read a lot of bullshit on. Hmm, really? uh, about where, yeah, about whether this golf course is good. There's bullshit on what. the internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to believe that, isn't it? No, but, I, you know, I never considered people it. People say, well, yeah, people say, well, this golf course, that golf course. You know, and there's always reasons why they don't like it. I mean, we all know that it's a lot easier for people to find uh, the negatives about projects as opposed to commenting on the positives. But owners. You know, they set forth a set of objectives uh, for the architects, right? When you're, when you're brought in, you have discussions with an owner. They want to say, you know, they have a certain mindset as to what this needs to be. Some guys need it to turn a profit. Uh, some guys say, listen, a profit isn't, isn't really, you know, what I'm driving for. I just want to build something great. So there's a lot of different things that go on out there. So they set that stuff uh, out for you. You try to obviously work with them and mold them and, and find a happy medium between the two. But, you know, a lot of the stuff out there, you know, has to, it has to be successful, right? It, it has to either it has to make money or it has to be highly regarded as, a, as, as really good golf course architecture or it's a fun place to be or maybe it needs to be a combination of all the above. But somewhere at the beginning of the project, there was a conversation that was had that, hey, this is a list of things that we need to accomplish on this design. And nobody can say it's successful or not successful design-wise unless you know what those conversations are. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of people get lost is, you know, on in that regard. And I know early on at like Rusty Canyon is that, you know, some of the comments we got was that, Hey, you know, it's not challenging enough off the tees for the better player. And it's it's not this or it's not that. But, you know, there is a financial constraint there. There's 70,000 rounds of golf going through it a year. So as you break that stuff apart in your design thought process, you know, you have to go ahead and hold true to at least for the most part. I mean, again, you can try to compromise with the ownership group, but it has to work. Right. It's just there's there's no other way about it. So everybody, whether it's us or whomever it may be, the young guys, they have to you know make sure that everything that was set forth on that project is accomplished in order for it to be successful. Yeah. Uh, so it's a huge thing, and a lot of people don't understand that. And you know, I, I hate when you know things are said on the internet and it goes right to price. Well, I'm never going to play there because it's costing 150 pounds or something like that. I, I get it. You know, that golf course may not be for, for you a specific person because of the cost. But, you know, unfortunately, somebody had to spend the money to build something, you know. Mm. So it's just it, it's hard. I mean, believe me, I get it. There's a whole architecture thing and how everything comes together. But there's also a practical aspect about it. And nobody wants to see, uh, you know, their courses on a uh, no longer exist list. <laughs> No doubt. I mean, the good thing for the for the younger guys that you work with that we're talking about is there's no shortage of shit sites out there. I mean, there are terrible golf courses in existence right now that could be renovated and turned into something great. So they're, I mean, if I were in, in their shoes, that's where I'd be looking and thinking, thinking, okay, that's what you just said. That's my. That's going to be where I'm going to kind of make my mark and 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 crack into this because the potential, you know, the sites are are there and they're waiting. They just need a little bit of funding and, and some will behind it to get the ball rolling yeah you're you're 100 correct and, and and i think for the young guys out there to focus like i think that's what their focus needs to be granted they all want to go ahead and get that that you know brand new design to be able to show you know their uh their abilities and and, and their thoughts and their, their innovation and whatever it might be but 
There's just not a whole heck of a lot of that happening out there. And you're right. There's a lot of shit golf courses out there that have just been run down that are on good pieces of ground that have good bones, uh, that aren't locked into housing developments. Uh, some of them maybe even are, but you know, you, you can go ahead and redo a golf course like that and show your worth, show your ability, you know, uh, much easier, uh, than it is to go ahead and try to get that new job. And, you know, golf is a, is a small community and the more times you can get your name out there, uh, the better off you're going to be. And I just got asked this question yesterday about Hans Golf Design and Gill and ourselves uh, in regards to like, you know, going from not being known at all to, you know, to some of the stuff that we've been able to accomplish. And, you know, I, I said it was just, it was a kind of a culmination of a lot of different things. But, you know, one of the things was, is that we had done a lot of renovation work that others did not want to get involved in for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, the more you do renovation, the more you understand the reasons. But uh, is that since it's a small community and people go play these clubs, they're members at other clubs, and all of a sudden you're becoming part of that golf network. If you do three or four renovations and everybody starts talking, hey, you know, they did a great job here. Gil did an awesome job there. Whatever it might be, then the name is now out there and it's no longer just, uh, you know, like who, who, who did that work? Uh, and that grows. So when somebody decides that they want to take a chance, either totally blowing up something, uh, existing or doing something, uh, brand new is, you know, the, the name has come from multiple different sources and that helps a lot in, uh, in selling your work and selling yourself, uh, for sure. So it's, yeah. There's a lot of things. In, so that in, was like your, was that like your 10 or 15 year period of just kind of like getting into the details and into the construction and, and honing your craft so that you get to that point when you got the big opportunities, you guys were ready. Do you look at it that way? Well, that, that's part of it. You're right, Doug. It's definitely part of it because what happens is, is you know, yeah, you, you dabble in some new, uh, new construction early on uh, and you're fortunate to get those jobs, but the owners are usually total whack jobs. Uh, so like, you, you, well, I don't you, know about the learn. owner, but like, I'm thinking of capstone club near where I live. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Well, you're not far off there. I mean, that was an absentee owner, right? And they were more along the lines of, Hey, we want to build great golf, but you know, there's a housing component to it. They didn't really care that much about the golf course. Yeah. I think that's uh, an old when story. Housing, yeah, yeah. And then when the housing goes under and it's out in the middle of freaking nowhere, Mm-hmm. You know, and nobody wants to live there other than that one poor bastard from LSU that's got the only house on the entire community. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's 30 minutes from downtown Tuscaloosa. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's nothing at all around. So, I mean, you have that. But, yeah, you're, you're right. Those things happen. And so you have that as a background. Uh, you have some uh, renovation work like we've been discussing, the renovation work. In the beginning is some decent golf courses that you're modifying. You're using some of the stuff you learned, then that grows into the next tier of golf courses. But as you go through those renovation projects and kind of show your abilities, each course you go to in the next tier of courses, the architecture goes up, right? It's, it's better architecture. The reason that it's considered or regarded a much better club uh, from a golf standpoint you know, so now you're you're living, you're working with something that is, you know, of significance, architectural value. Uh, so you learn, you learn by being out there and doing the work. And that's why when we kind of started this conversation, you know, saying it takes a while 
five years, 10 years, 15 years, because each project is brand new. And that's part of it. Each architecture of every golf course you go to from a renovation standpoint is brand new. You know, somebody else has done something there. There's reason somebody did what they did and why that golf course is considered great. You know, did they use the high points on the routing and that's where they, they put all the green sites? Or did they use those high points as the approaches and fill out on the green sites to have some dramatic drop off and surrounds? You know, there's a lot of different things and you have to store all that in your memory. You know, pictures are great to reference, but you've got to be able to visualize that stuff, perceive it when you're out there and store it. You may store it for 15 years. And then next thing you know, you're walking around the site or a project and you're like, man, that would be great if I went back and, you know, kind of mirrored the the first green at Paxson Hollow, you know, some municipal mm-hmm. golf course in my hometown, you know, so that stuff sticks with you. So, you know, it, it's all part of it. Uh, and, and the architecture is part of it. And it just it, it does it. It takes a while and you have to get out there and, and just continue to do it. So in your design process, how much of what you build and what you conceive, you and Gil, well, I just just you since I, since you can't get inside his mind, but just yep. you, how much of any particular feature, especially on a new course or, or a complete stripped down renovation, is somewhere in your mind referencing something that you've seen before, not directly, but just is somewhere and 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 how often are are you saying like I've never I'm doing something that's so kick ass I've never seen this done before this is just you know this is going to be really cool and really fresh. What's the break? You know, how, what's your process like when it comes to m- accessing all this material in your background that you've talked about? I say it's probably you know it, it's probably sixty percent of I've seen this someplace before. Now, with that being said, it may not be I've seen that before in the sense of golf course architecture. It may be I've seen that before driving down some road from Denver to North Platte. And I saw a blowout in a uh, in a sand hill off to the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you look at that, and you're like, you know what? That, that's pretty cool. And you may you may take that thought or that visual that you have. Now, obviously, you know, five years later, ten years later, you know, a couple thousand martinis. Uh, your perception of what that was is yeah, different, right? But but you you still have that in there, and and you look at it, and it may be something that you say to yourself, "Hey, I'm going to build that blowout," or it may just be in your mind somewhere. And you may take that and do it on the 12th hole at the Vineyard Club in Martha's Vineyard. But then again, you may look at something you see over at Scotland on the old course, you know, the approach of two on the old course. And you may say, you know what, that's great. I'm going to mimic that on the uh, 13th of Castle Stewart. You know, so it's probably 60 percent that for sure. Uh, It's probably the remaining 40 percent is probably broken up. 10 percent is probably, you know. No dumb bastard is crazy enough to ever try to build this because it makes absolutely no sense. Uh, Do you have an example of that? Anything that you can think of? uh, Almost anything we've done with Bill Kittleman. Okay. (laughs) And Bill's Bill's a great friend. He was the pro. He's like the uh, he's like the drug, the acid drop in the in the mixture. Yeah, he he can definitely be that way, you know, and shake it up out on site, and you know, that's another entire. podcast that we could talk mm-hmm. about bill and what bill's meant to gill and i in our careers but you know we've done stuff like the uh fit the fifth tee at uh at whatchamacallit at uh french creek uh what we did there is you came off the back of four in a significant elevation change you know maybe 30 feet or so between the back of four green and then up to where we were going to put uh five green and it's just a short par three so 
you know, we built uh, kind of a, like a lack of a better phrase, a, you know, an earthen uh, wall where we put fescue on it because we knew somebody would only be hitting a wedge off of that. But yeah. imagine being three yards in front of the tee. You've got a six or eight foot grass bank facing you. <laughs> you know? Okay. Yeah, I don't so, think I've seen that before. Yeah. So it's stuff like that that you pull out. And it's like, you know what? So 10% of the time, you may have to do that on a job. You may want to do that just to go ahead and, and add that little bit of quirk. I mean, I think if you look at a majority of the great golf courses or anytime you go over to the UK and in Ireland, Scotland, and you know England, et cetera, uh, in that part of the world, and you play golf, some of the great golf courses you go to, there's always something that you see that you haven't seen before that you can label as quirky or whatever kind of word you want to use for it. But it's part of it. It's part of the experience. And if you can do that, then I think that's a huge thing. I mean, you're always looking to to try to, to maximize that potential, or at least in our thought process or my thought process, I'm looking for that. Uh, something that's wacky and doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And people are looking at it and say, oh, no, Christ, what the hell is this? Uh, but so you enjoy so- that. You enjoy the idea of putting confronting a, a player with with things that are going to make them uncomfortable or or question what you're doing <laughs> exactly exactly we'll get back to that uncomfortable thing but you're right you know that that's what we're looking to do now of course that can be forced you know some guys will say well why did they do that doesn't make any sense you know you still have to be mindful of that it's not like i'm saying that you know 10 percent of all the stuff i do on all of our designs is going to be something of that ilk uh, it's not, it's just overall some sites you get to where you may have to do that. Like in his Chrome, one of our early designs, we had to do that quite often just because of the nature of the site. Uh, and some sites, you know, may require you to do that. Uh, and then the remaining 30% is just, you know, new stuff that the, the site and, and the natural environment allow you to do that you're really not picking out. And saying, hey, I want to I want to mimic, you know, the 13th at Marion, you know, you're saying to yourself, well, what really works here is this sort of green. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just fits so natural into the ground and the contours and kind of let them be. And I think you, you see it a lot and hear a lot of guys say, you know, people can do too much to a site. And that's that's really I think what separates a lot of people is, is that, you know, there is a tendency to overshape in that regard if you want to call it that or over design or, or, or yeah, strip, strip that away, just kind of get rid of the uncomfortable aspects of it. Exactly. Exactly. And let's, which make happened for, for decades and decades. I think that's what, no, I'm sorry to interrupt Jim, no, but you know, it's my, I guess I'm just thinking that, you know, that, that is one thing. And I don't know that I've ever thought about it quite in this way before. That's the one thing that separates the last 20 years of architecture at the highest levels, which you guys do and what Bill and Tom do is that you embrace those unnatural uh, instances on a golf course those those things that in the past would have been eliminated on the site because they just you know they were abrupt or uh they were a little too jarring when you met them and there's a tendency to kind of just smooth everything over and you guys don't do that it's part of what great modern architecture does is it throws these different shapes and these different visions at the player and it's it's an embrace of quirk in essence is kind of going back to which how you described it earlier sure i mean you're absolutely correct, Eric. And, and, you know, we want to see that shit on the site when we go. You know what I mean? If we're yeah. going to look at a new site, we we want that. We want to embrace that. We want to work with that. It adds character. 
Uh, it adds creativity. There's so much that, you know, comes as part of that. And I think ultimately it just makes it a much more interesting project and a much more interesting golf course uh, when you have that as opposed to just, like you're saying, taking it totally away. Now the question becomes is are people, are architects not embracing that because they don't think it's a good feature or are they embra not embracing that because they're not spending enough time on the golf property during the routing phase and or during construction. Because typically, even if you said had a, had a like a, a sandy quarry or something, and you said, okay, I have to route the golf course through this sandy quarry bit right here. It may not be the best looking thing in the world, you know, if that's your mindset, but the hole has to go there. Okay, that's great. We, we put that hole there, but during the course of construction, you know, that's when all this stuff really starts to... Uh, shed a light on how do you use the features that are in and around the routing you've created to to maximize the potential of the golf course so mm -hmm. if you're there and you're looking at it i mean you may study this shit for you know three months and not have any idea of what to do and the next thing you know the sun's right and one evening you're out there early in the morning and you've seen something on the road that you kind of draw from your experience and you say you know what we can keep that there you know, sure, this corner here may be in the fairway, but why can't we just manipulate that corner and leave the rest of it there and maybe slide the tee over, you know, or move the green back? There's a lot of options within that routing. You don't have to be and you shouldn't be married to specifically what that routing says. And if you're in the office and you're not out there enough seeing and and participating in that, then maybe, just maybe, you're not taking advantage of those things. Now, I'm not saying that's the reason why people don't, but, you know, from our experiences and what we see and what I do, and, you know, it's being out there. It's seeing it and, and saying, hey, we can, we can do this. Even though it's not on the plan, we can do this and still accomplish the exact same strategic options that uh, you were thinking about when you originally, you know, rallied the golf course. You know, so there's a, there's a lot to that. Also, though, I mean, you have to admit it, it probably goes back to whoever is in charge of the design, their outlook on golf and, and how it should be played. I mean, I think there's a lot of there are a lot of people in the business now and, and in the past who who would have thought, you know, incorporating a piece of sandy quarry that might be uh, used as a hazard off the drive in a certain way or as a strategic hazard was going to be too difficult. You know, it, it was going to uh, be a little too rough and they wanted to kind of steer away from that and make golf a little bit more fair and, and playable. So it, it also goes back to, you know, how you view golf and strategy and, and what good golf is. And and part of what you're saying, and I kind of wanted to get into this, talk about speaking of making golfers uncomfortable, is the element of, of fear. And mm. it seems to me like there's a, a, a dividing line right there between uh, architectural outlooks you either embrace the concept of fear or you kind of want to strip it away um and that there's aren't only two camps you can be in but it, it is somewhat of a dividing line in how you look at the element of fear and how you arrange a hole or hazards to get into this inside the golfer's head and make them think you're correct you're correct in everything you just said in that regard uh and you know it all kind of also goes back to the to the beginning you know there's a list of you know, uh, requirements or objectives that the owner wants. Uh, and maybe you don't take a job because you're of the mindset of what we've been discussing and the owner wants this site to be, you know, extremely playable. But it definitely has to go back to the thought process of who's designing it for sure. 
I mean, we just we're of the camp, and, and when you look at it and think about golf as a sport, you know, because I consider golf a sport, you know, there's a lot of sports out there where whether it's baseball, right? You have somebody uh, who is trying to stop you from succeeding at what you want to do, right? You, you're a batter, you have a pitcher, vice versa. Football, there's offense, there's defense, basketball, offense, defense, hockey, all that kind of stuff. Tennis, you have another opponent, somebody who is striving to beat you. Golf is an individual uh, or a team, right, set up against the golf course. So us as golf course architects, I mean, we have to be that defense. We have to think of ways that we can go ahead and enter into the mind of the player, the offensive person, uh, which any sport does from a defensive standpoint, Mm -hmm. and try to get them to screw up, whether it's screw up because they can't handle it physically or whether they screw up because they can't handle it mentally. Uh, we prefer to, you know, in some cases, more times than not, is go after the mental side of stuff. Uh, and that's all we really have. <laughs> you know what I mean? Especially nowadays with a better player, they're so freaking good. They hit the ball so goddamn far. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that uh, Pete Dye realized a long time ago. You can't, you can't make them physically, courses too physically difficult in a way they'll catch up. But yet your last resort is to get into their heads. You know, the classic Dye... Once you start making these guys think they're screwed. Yep, that's it. You know, it's interesting. The stuff we've done for the PGA Tour, you know, they all do the shot link. So every event has a shot link that tells you where, they don't name the players, but they tell you where every ball landed on every hole, right? What they made from that position, what they did on the approach shots, what they did putting, et cetera. And, you know, the stuff we looked at, say, for the TPC of Boston, the ninth hole of TPC of Boston is just really a very – uh, mundane tee shot. You know, there's no bunkers out in the landing area. There's some mounds down the right and some tree line on the left. Uh, out in the approach, uh, there's a bunker probably about 50 yards short of the green. Uh, when you look at the difference between shots that uh, are on the left side of that fairway to the right side of the fairway, is that they are scattered all over the place. And what people make from one side of the golf hole to the other, you know, varies. There's no set, uh, say, formula or template on how the players are playing that golf hole. And it seems to, to change the overall score because there's nothing that tells the player off the tee, I need to carry that bunker or I need to get close to that bunker. It's just a wide open field. Mm-hmm. And that seems to throw them off because they're not thinking. They're not picturing something as to where they need to hit that ball. And you look at other holes where you have a carry of 280 or 290 or nowadays 340, you know, that causes them to aim for that or just play to the left of it or short of it. Well, then those holes seem to to play a little bit easier for the players because they have something. They can now focus on something. Uh, So, you know, that's kind of a defense. So that tells you that visualization is such a component of tour-level golf. It, It is. It is, you know, and, you know, here's a funny story. When we did the, uh, it's not, it could be actually considered a sad story, really. <laughs> Tragic. <laughs> Tragic. When we finished the, uh, the work at Doral, right? The Doral was a big thing. It, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it had totally lost its way and, you know, the course was way too short, blah, blah, blah. And It'd been made, do- made over so many times. Yeah, and we won't get into the fact about how the World Golf Championship probably destroyed that stop. Uh, from what it used to be. So we make a lot we of changes. You, you can get into it if you mean. 
if you want to. Well, yeah, well, I don't <laughs> I don't know enough about it other than it was a it was a really fun event. Uh, and a lot of people like to go there. A lot of, you know, uh, fans like to go to it. It had a, a fun atmosphere kind of along the lines of, say, what the, uh, you know, Honda Classic is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's enjoyable. It becomes a little bit more of a party scene and all that kind of stuff. And then you, you open up a world golf championship and, you know, it gets it gets sterilized. Sure, you have the greatest players in the world there. But, you know, you got a no-cut event. You know, there's... Uh, not as much excitement behind it, you know, because it's strictly golf with the top 50 or 70 players, whatever the field is or was. Yeah. Uh, sanitized. Then, it's like a Super yeah, Bowl. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what it is, Derek. It's a sanitized Super Bowl mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, an average. Um, like the, yeah. The, it, yeah. Opposed to like the SEC championship game or, or the, you know, exactly. a, a great football, yeah. the Eagles, just, Cowboys. Yeah. It was just a, a regular rival game, you know, so. They, they, they stripped that out as part of that. But anyhow, so, well, that's a good lead into kind of the mindset of the players there, right? They are paid to go, right? There's no cut. So they're guaranteed 75000 bucks or whatever the number is. So we, we make all the changes to the golf course, you know, some really, really good, some that the players love, some that the players didn't like, but, you know, the place definitely needed a makeover. So this one particular player who had won the FedEx Cup a couple years uh, earlier, uh, not to say his name, but Billy Horschel, uh, you know. Billy, 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 Billy. <laughs> so we had a, uh, him and I had a conversation about the golf course, and it was uh, you know, who, kind of Who better to talk architecture with than Billy Horschel? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's the best, right? Uh, so anyhow. Steep. Uh, I mean, it's steep. He's, he's a very good player. He's a very good player. But th- this just is getting into the mindset of the player and kind of why we're bringing it up, and I'm just using him as the example because of the conversation. But uh, as part of that, you know, there was a polo event or something at the pro shop the night before. So Wednesday night, you know, they tail off on Thursday morning. And the woman who runs a pro shop, you know, introduced me to Billy and explained who I was. And, you know, he could tell he was a little apprehensive. And uh, she's like, well, tell him what you think about the golf course. You know, and he's like, yeah. I'm like, no, listen, Billy, you can tell me, I, you know, hey, we're big boys. There's a reason why we did everything out there. You know, just feel free. A lot of times I actually like it because I want to know what drives them crazy so we can continue to do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, these guys think if you, if you say or, or something to us that we're going to change it. And and by the way, some of the players do do that. You know, they do bring stuff up because the next job we go to or that particular golf course, they want us to make changes based on their recommendations because those recommendations benefit them. And when you're playing for a million, you know, a million five or something, you know, it behooves them to yeah, be they, able to make Occasionally mistakes. they do get their way. We've seen yeah. that. So Billy was like, uh, you know, hey, you know, I like the golf course and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's just it, it's it's too much. I'm like, in what way? He's like, well, you know, every tee that we go to, we have to think. There's no let up holes. There's no <laughs> holes where we don't have to think. And I'm thinking to myself, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> you know, like, first off, you're going to make more money in four days than most Americans make in an entire year. You know, and they have to think every single day on their jobs. Uh, and oh, by the way, you don't think come Thursday of every week that they're mentally drained. That's why Thursday's the biggest happy hour crowd there is, is people are worn out. Right. So I'm just looking at that. I'm like, you know, this is this is a thought process. And it's probably not him alone. It's just everybody. It's like there's too much thinking involved, uh, which seems to be odd, you know, like thinking. I mean, so, yeah, maybe on the ninth hole, TPC of uh 
Boston, you know, you have to think about what makes sense for your shot into the green. You know, do you want to be on the left side of the fairway or right? There's nothing to guide you out there. You actually have to think about what you want to do. Right. And it seems like architectural in general, and a lot of people who don't understand architecture or don't want to take the time to understand it after playing a golf course once, you know, is maybe because they don't want to think. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know what? Maybe they're going out to play golf and, you know, their, their jobs and their lives and they have to think every day and they just want to go out there and enjoy themselves and the golf course kind of, you know, let them weave their way around the property. And that's fine as well. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and when we get criticized about our, our golf courses, which, I, you know, I don't really pay a whole heck of a lot of mind to. And I've played with guys that after 17 holes of having a great round of golf with them on a uh, neutral venue, find out that, you know, I was behind Streamsong Black and they're like, I hated that place. <laughs> I'm like, well, you can. And I don't I, like well, you my, anymore. Yeah. Well, my response back to him was, hey, you have an opinion. I said, how many times you played? To like once. I didn't understand this. I didn't understand that. I said, that's fine. I said, you don't really have to go back there and play. I said, you know, Myrtle Beach has 100 golf courses you can go play. Nice. Well, so Burn. there's <laughs> – so, yeah. So, and, you know, they proceed to hit four balls in the water off the tee because they're so distraught. Right. But, so, uh, so clearly the, the best way, if, if, you're, if you're having to, to deal with this uh, PGA Tour – thing which not you know not too many people have to deal with it but when when the the, the arrow and the dial comes around to Hanson Wagner and, and you're called on to do something about this for a tournament event clearly the best way is to find a method to you know horshel them to make them think <laughs> but but on a more technical side and and I I don't want to I hope this question isn't like too simplistic and doesn't make me sound too dumb but is is it possible to set up a golf course for a PGA tour event and sort of protect, I don't, I hate the word defend par, but whatever, what you're trying to go for, achieve that through bunkering through a centerline hazard, which you know, that's touchy issue. I know, but, or, or just different types of bunkering scenarios. Does that work? That's a fucking stupid question. Derek. Oh shit. I'm going to edit this whole part out. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, okay. no, no. Uh, what's no, your favorite no. color? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, no, it's a, no, it's actually a good question. And you know, a good observation and something, you know, to think about uh, and do that. I mean, yes, that has to be the bunkering scheme has to be a part of the golf course, right? Whatever the percentage is, uh, but it definitely has to be out there. A lot of it is just how it's used. And again, all you're trying to do is you're trying to create interest, right? So what you're really basically saying in your question is, is that can you make the golf course interesting enough and challenging enough for the tour players by the use of bunkers? Yes. Because if you, yeah, if you make it interesting, you add your st strategy into it, you pull all that stuff together, then it should challenge uh, all the different levels of players, even on the PGA Tour, which is kind of a huge issue because the difference in, in the ball, the distance, you know, a lot of those older players, are, you know, at least when we were doing the work at the TPC of Boston and even at Doral, is that, you know, the shorter players of, of those age groups are only getting the ball out about 280, 290. Uh, right. And then you see the driving distances of the other guys, whether they 340. Yeah. You know, and, and, and they roll out even further. So how do you go ahead and, and, and bring all that stuff together? The use of centerline bunkers, you know, and we'll take 13 at, at TPC of Boston, for instance. You know, it was just a, a really mundane downhill drive where the longer hitter would get up there and just bomb the living shit out of it. And the shorter hitters back, you know, uh, and a contour in the ground doesn't allow them to roll out as far. 
So we were tasked with making a change to that hole that would go ahead and create some interest, give it a feel of being in New England as opposed to being in Myrtle Beach, uh, and kind of bring all that stuff together. So we brought in a bunch of dirt and we jacked up the landing area at an angle going from right to left with about a, I don't know, with probably an average of a 10-foot drop-off, which was just a bank mm-hmm. of you know fescues and stuff. The right side, you know, through yardage was about 280. The left side yardage through yardage was about 330, okay? Uh, the fairway at that point, okay, was probably about 50 yards wide, maybe a little bit more. So our thought process is, without any hazards, it's okay, you know, these players off the tee have to worry a little bit about what they're hitting. If you have a longer hitter that can hit the ball 340, well, he may not be able to hit a driver on that particular day, okay? He may have to go ahead and hit a three-wood, you know, to to the right-hand side or or to the left. And you hit the ball down to the left, they're out there, you know, 300 yards. They got the best angle into that green. So pretty easy. But then for the average player who can only hit it about 285, say, to 300 max, he's going to hit a driver in the same location. So now you've put these guys together. You've put them, you know, in a position where they can both compete from the same angle, kind of the same spot. Uh, And then from there, you know, they play into the hole, obviously. But it's a way to go ahead and use something, a natural feature, in this case, a man-made feature that would go ahead and and create some of that thought process off the tee. Thought process, right? We keep saying thought process. Thought process. That's obviously a bad word. But as part of that, you know, we said, listen, that's too wide out there of – you know, 50 yards, 55 yards wide. So we went ahead and put a center line bunker out there. Well, that was kind of the end. You know, it, it, it didn't get well received uh, for a lot of different reasons. But if you played to the left, you had a 25-yard wide fairway, which is probably, you know, wider than average on a lot of PGA Tour venues. Uh, and the same thing on the right side, okay, it was 25 yards. So you can play it there. A lot was said and discussed about it, and we were like, okay, fine, you know, it's really not worth it. Uh, so if you guys don't like it, just feel free to take it out, which they did. And then you look at the following year, and you know I don't know what the stroke difference was. It didn't really follow it. But a lot of guys are just hitting the ball. They're ending up on the right side or in the middle of fairway where that bunker once was. But that really, quite frankly, isn't the best angle into the green. You know, you need to be down to the left. So you're right about that. You know, that's just one example from our standpoint where a bunker, a center line bunker, you know, started to wreak some havoc, a natural feature that caused people to have to think about through through yardage, which generally I don't think the better player. And again, we're just using PGA Tour as an example, just because a lot of people are familiar with it. But is that, you know, through yardage is a tough thing for better players. How far? is that hazard on the on the far end of the fairway. Mm-hmm. That if I hit the ball well, am I going to roll out and be in a hazard 350 yards out there? That becomes an issue to them, uh, more so than a carry. They know exactly what they can carry. They don't know exactly how far that ball is going to run out. Or, you know, firm and fast conditions, what is that actual roll? Uh, you know, what's the contour that's going to lead it into uh, into whatever exactly. hazard? Through that's yards. why the Open yeah. Championship is always so interesting to watch when they get baked out. You know, they'll, the guys will be hitting, you know, they'll be clubbing down off the tee, but they don't know. It could run 80 yards into one of those pot bunkers. It's a penalty stroke. It's, it's yeah. So, that, you know, you're taking their calculations a little bit out of their hands, which is really interesting to see. 
Yeah, no, and, and that's part of it. And, and you asked about the bunkers and things like that. Sure. Yeah. You know, you can put a bunker, you know, depending upon how you design it, depending upon the carry, you know, you can create the bunker complexes. And I guess what I'm referring to is it, it all doesn't have to be a carry bunker. You know, if you put something on the far side of a fairway with a contour that can kick into it, uh, that that also becomes an issue uh, for the players. And we've done that before. And, you know, We've also been asked to remove that sort of thing. Yeah. So <laughs> earlier I was looking at aerials of Doral, speaking of yep. Doral, and looking at uh, what Dick Wilson originally built there, which is really interesting. It's a, yep. you know, that had, that had been, the routing had always been the same, but, you know, the character and the bunkering and, and the positions uh, had really been altered. And there's a lot of really cool bunkering features that he put in, like these little like Art Nouveau squiggle bunkers and a lot of really interesting shapes. And then that had gotten erased over the years. And, you know, you go through certain periods where the bunkers are just enormous and completely out of proportion. And then mm -hmm. they're, you know, they just change, everything changes shapes uh, over the years. And then what you guys did, it looked like it came back in. And I don't know how much you tried to recapture that Wilson style of bunkering, but it looks like you use a lot smaller bunkers with a little more detail not the big 1990s kind of blooming, you know, rounded edge stuff. And, but really off the tee, just what we're talking about, it looked like you kind of anticipated a landing zone and kind of just shifted or twisted the fairway slightly with bunkers, getting back to this concept of hitting through the fairway and kind of creating a through fairway hazard on, on a lot of holds, not every hole, but a lot of holds. Yep. But what, I mean, is that something, am I reading that correctly? Cause it looked like a really interesting presentation of, of driving landing areas and second shot areas on par fives too. Yep. No, you're, you're absolutely right about that. Derek. And what we had is when we, when we went to do the work is we, we had uh, Wilson's original plans. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that was you know kind of the the concept or his design design philosophy was that uh now we we tweaked it for you know the modern game and kind of brought all that stuff together, but that was part of our thought process that appeared to be part of wilson's so backstory to it is <laughs> I don't think Wilson ever uh was there after the design. I think he got in a fight with the owner for various different reasons, and he just turned it over uh probably to Joe Lay or, or, or maybe even somebody else in their office to do the actual work. So the things that were built shortly thereafter uh, the opening did not match what was on the plan from how tight the bunkers were to the greens. Interesting. How tight the fairways were or the fairway bunkering was to the fairways uh, and things of that nature. So we really took that cue from his original design. And just a lot of our uh, discussions with, you know, the guys from the PGA Tour and some of their insight uh, you know, thoughtful insight on, you know, what, you know, gets into the player's mind and, and what some of their concerns and through yardage is definitely one of those things. Uh, and we just said, hey, let's combine all this together and, and put it out there. And, you know, <clears throat> you do that, you got a hundred and some odd bunkers on a golf course and you have that stuff and, you know, minimal ground features. But, you know, sometimes they don't always act or react the way you think they're going to in the field. And in some cases, you know, the players' gripes, you know, do have merit uh, just because it's you're asking them to land in a certain location. They're hitting the perfect shot in that location. And next thing you know, the, the ball's kicking into, you know, an area that it, you know, isn't intended to kick into. And then if you make the option, say the layup option, we'll say that's the, you know, the, the carry option. And it ends up into a, a place where we're not intending it to go. But then conversely, 
we take the area that a guy can lay up on, say hit a three wood or a hybrid or something off the tee into a sweet spot. If that is also not receptive, then yeah, you have to look at going back and making some adjustments. Mm-hmm. That happened to us on the seventh hole at the route, whereby you know the the landing area for the average player or the guy that wanted to lay up and not try to carry the bunker was a little bit too penal, and the balls all kicked into the right side bunker, as opposed to if they tried to make the carry. If they did make the carry, the way the ground sloped, their ball kicked all the way over into the right rough or worse yet into the water. Okay. So, you know, you, you can see their point from that standpoint that, hey, this may be just, you know, we get your thought process, but, you know, it's just not reacting that way. And you go back and you strip some sod the following year and you, you, you kind of change it up a little bit or maybe fill in part of a bunker or reorient a bunker. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, and that's what people have to realize and us as architects and designers have to realize is that, you know what, we make mistakes. It's We're, we're not always perfect at everything. And if we have to make some tweaks and adjustments here and there, it's not an issue. But when that stuff comes up, we prefer not to be a, a knee-jerk reaction. You know, we want it to be something along the lines of, I've played this golf hole now for the past three years. <laughs> and it's just, you know, everybody in ourselves and as a collective group, we just it's just not working. Uh, so can we take a look at it? You know, the thing that we don't like and we, we usually refuse is, you know, of course it's been open and people have played it five or six times and they can't figure out how to play the golf hole and they want to make changes, you know, in our mind, that's, that's a good that's thing. That's yeah, that, yeah, that's narrow minded, you know, and all these great golf courses you see and part of our philosophy is, is that we want people to be able to play our golf courses, you know, maybe an entire lifetime you know, uh, and not really figure out all the nuances of it on any given day, depending on the wind direction uh, or the conditions. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, we could get into the whole thing about, you know, the uh, insanity of some of the modern day golfers where everything needs to be consistent on a daily basis, 365 days a year. Cause that takes out another element of, of, you know, what we feel about golf course design, but you know, you have to be able to go and think about a golf course and think about the different shots that are required and execute them over a long period of time. And, and that's part of it. It's kind of the bunkering concept, the interest concept. I mean, it all has to be there. It has to be combined. It has to be bunkering. It has to be natural hazard. It has to be some man-made non-sand hazards that you put out there. It, you know, it, it has to be uh, contours in the ground. It's just It has to be everything together. Uh, in order to make it work. And I think if you look at all the great golf courses, you know, you brought up the op- Open Championship and, you know, those bunkers that are out there, 380 or some of the bunkers that are 150 yards off of the uh, off of the tee. And you're like, nobody's ever going to get into those. Well, you know what? When it's baked out and the wind's blowing the right direction, hell yeah, people are going to get into those bunkers. Uh, so, yeah, it, it all becomes part of it for sure. So, Doral, did you get paid for that? You know, everybody asks that question. <laughs> That's the first question that everybody asks, and, and yes, we did. It's it's low hanging fruit, but I want to know. It is, it is. No, we we got paid. You know, uh, we were asked to do more work for, uh, uh, you know, uh, Donald, and uh, you know, we we actually had and I had a very good relationship with him uh, in that regard. It was actually a, a fun uh, working relationship, and you know what, I learned a shitload. I can tell you that, <laughs> you know, uh, well, about construction uh, in general, about all the stuff that goes on. You know, we all look at architecture and construction as what you can see in the field. 
But there's a whole lead up uh, to make that happen. You know, there's specifications, there's budgets, there's bidding processes. There's all sorts of stuff like that that are part of it. And that's really, you know, working with him is a lot of stuff that I learned. Uh, and it wasn't just kind of laid out. It was through, you know, conversations, you know, constantly. I think I talked to him three times a week. Uh, he would just call me and just want to talk about golf kind of as an outlet. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it was great. But, you know, you'd learn that stuff. And, again, it's not so much a golf end of things. It's a construction perspective uh, outside of, you know, golf course architecture and, you know, in his world of what he'd seen over all those years. And you can say that for a lot of different owners and a lot of different aspects. You know, there's a lot to learn from the people we work for. They're all very successful people. Uh, they're very passionate about golf, you know, and you have to be very successful and very passionate about golf in order to want to get in golf development in any way, shape or form. Right. <laughs> You're not going to make a lot of money doing it. No, I, but, so. I, I mean, I, there's a lot of Americans who wish he would have stayed in golf course development. But I have heard that before that he's uh, as far as that goes, golf, that, you know, he's he's a pretty good client to have or was. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, it was great. He's very bullish on golf, which is great, uh, you know, from an architecture and a client perspective, you know. Uh, there's, you know, several people out there that are, that are bullish on golf and interested in it, but the more, the better, you know, and, and if there's anything, you know, uh, to that, we, we need more people like that, that are bullish on golf, uh, and how golf is, is going to move forward. And, you know, you were talking about the young guys early on and how to get them out on, on new projects or moving forward and taking some of the old shit clubs that are out there that just have been run down over time and have them come in and, you know, get a fresh set of eyes on it and some interesting new ideas and, and start doing that. If we have people that were bullish on golf and we're doing that more, then it's it's only good for the economy of golf, right? And if those courses are fun and interesting and it drives people to play and more people are playing, then, you know, it just, it kind of, you know, self-feeds it's uh, along the way. So, I, you know, I think it's it's all good stuff. Right. People Go, may not agree back, with that, but, you know, it is. Going back to Trump, just real quick. Yeah. It seems like what, and, and maybe I'm I'm being presumptive of what I what I know or I think about you and and Gil. It, it just seems like like the your preferred method of of golf and the things that you value in golf would sit at opposition to the things that Trump likes about golf you know he likes wall-to-wall -wall manicured he wants everything perfect he's not averse to waterfalls he you know he he wants a big clubhouse he he wants what and maybe i'm being presumptive about what he wants but this is this is my observation but he okay. wants all the things that are, are kind of bad for golf in a way the, the things that that going forward into the future it, don't bode well for the the health and the state of the game other outside of a, a small select group of really wealthy people whereas I, I get the feeling that you and Gil would rather do these kind of courses that we just you just mentioned like s a smaller uh, you know economical really interesting architecture things that challenge you naturalism those types of concepts so it just seems like that's an odd mix for you guys to, to kind of be partnering with with him well, I mean, you, you can be right in that assumption uh, of things, but, you know, a lot of this stuff comes down to timing and it comes down to definitions of things. And, you know, at the time that, you know, we were brought in to work, you know, with him uh, at Doral and through some recommendations of the PGA Tour, 
is that his thought process, and maybe it was, you know, from chatting with Gil and from us that waterfalls are evil. Uh, and yeah. that all that stuff you see at some of his places mm-hmm. that were his trademark, you know, it's it golf. Some golf courses are not Las Vegas or Atlantic City casinos, right? It's golf. It's something totally different. And we were fortunate enough that you know the waterfall you know discussion may have come up, but you know it didn't really gain any traction because at that point in time, he was starting to realize that they really weren't uh, the best you know, option for Doral and maybe not even some of his other places because he was actively taking that stuff out. Uh, I think he took it out at LA and, you know, places like that. So you're right. Uh, maybe assuming that looking at his past work, uh, I think if you look from the time that we started with him moving forward, whether it's at Doral, now Doral is it's South Florida. It has a mystique to it. Uh, some of the stuff like the the fountain, you know, that was an iconic fountain that's been, you know, uh, on the golf course for, you know, ever since it opened. So you're going to put that back in. Uh, and from that standpoint, sure, there is a little bit of that. There is some of that at Doral, but he was actually backing off of that during that time period. And yeah, you know, the money aspect of things, you know, hell, we, we, we'd like to have owners that have a lot of money. <laughs> it doesn't mean we're going to spend it. Uh, or want to spend it or any of that nature, but it definitely helps the equation uh, because they're not worried about what's that going to cost. There's nothing worse than having a client or a club or whatever it is. And you say, man, it would would be really cool to put a hell's half acre across this hole. The the shot, the strategy, the interest, everything aligned itself for it and have an owner say, how much is that going to cost? Right. Right. That's the last thing you want to have. Mm-hmm. So with Trump, it's like, hey, spend as much money as you want. You know, I, I got no problem with it. You explain it. You know, he w- that's the thing about him is he wants quality. Now, it's our job to be able to try to deliver that, taking the principles that we know, taking some of the thoughts that, that he had in his mind and bringing it all together to create something great. Uh, that that's That's our job. Now, he doesn't worry about the architecture and the things of greens. You know, we didn't have any conversations with Greens. We didn't have any conversations about bunkers. You know, he trusts us on all that stuff. <laughs> I mean, obviously, he came out quite often, looked at things. We had discussions uh, about bunkering, about Greens. But, you know, maybe after he saw the first couple that we built, he was fine. Or maybe he looked at them or, you know, whatever it might be. But there was a comfort level there uh, in, in being able to do all that and allowing us to do what we wanted to do in those regards. Uh, there's some areas where, you know, he saw opportunities to, you know, make the golf course longer, uh, move things around. But really the, the interesting thing about him is that I'd be standing out in a certain area on the golf course as remote as it could be and wanting to do whatever to that area, you know, on a 300 acre property or whatever it is and, uh, have him on the phone and be explaining to him like the thought process of our change. And it would almost be like he was standing there with you because he could visualize. He's like, yeah, there's a swale there. And you're like, how the hell does he know that there's a swale here? Hmm. You know, but his ability to visualize and I don't know what kind of plans he had in front of him. If he just had a big overall, you know, satellite image or a Google image of the property and he was able to, you know, at least like see it or where you were and then use that to. Uh, to be able to, you know, flip his brain, to be able to discuss what was there, or if he was just sitting in his chair uh, and being able to recite what he remembers from seeing that. But 
you know, and that must just be from his development and, and his abilities that he was able to visualize that. But, you know, you're right in the sense that, you know, it's it's kind of a different, you know, personality. But, you know, we we think we've done some good stuff for him. And when we did the work for him in Dubai, there was no issues. And, you know, we did it. We put a big barranca through the property. We dropped the golf course down into the ground. There's a lot of stuff we did there that would be atypical or you would consider being, you know, something that would not be in uh, in his vocabulary or part of what his other golf courses were, uh, for sure. But I think, you know, looking forward at some of the stuff he's done and maybe with, you know, Turnberry and places like that and his golf course in Scotland, I mean, it's those are, are very interesting, very good golf courses. Uh, you know, a lot of cool stuff there. I mean, there's probably some stuff that he's done that people don't agree with and there's probably other stuff that people do agree with. But... You know, I think there was maybe a little bit of a change going on when we started working with him. And who knows? Maybe we can take credit that we're the ones that helped him, you know, make that change. We'll <laughs> yeah, pro- I mean, the influence <laughs> yeah. rubs, rubs off both ways. But so, so mutual respect on both sides. Yeah, I, I think so, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so the stream songs uh, was an, obviously a, a great project for you guys. And one of the, the, the story that it's been told... And I'm not, you know, I may not get this exactly right, but about how the greens evolved and it was hard to find the edges of the greens and then they kind of expanded and blah, blah, blah. Now the greens are, you know, bigger than you intended them. And I was thinking that this is a really interesting concept. And what if you took that concept and extended it to an entire golf hole to the point where there just there's no definition there's really no green or the whole entire hole is one green. So you could... You know, you could just move the hole to any part of this 400-yard swath of wide, rumbling grass. It's all cut. I don't know if that's agronomically feasible or not, but going back to the concept of innovation and maybe what some of the young guys could do, that's a big, big issue. It's like, well, what, what can we go? Where can we go from here? Like, what, what's there's nothing new in golf, but it just struck me when thinking about this, Norman, I was going to talk to you about this concept of, I mean, is, is it possible that you could have a, a giant expanse of a 400 yard long green and you could just cut the hole at any point along that and, and repeat that 18 or 12 or nine times over a, a golf around a golf. How much fucking marijuana do you smoke? <laughs> Been hanging out with Bill Kittleman and getting some of that acid. Damn, man. <laughs> Hopefully in one of those states where the gummy bears are legal. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, uh, uh, you'd probably drive a superintendent insane. I mean, it's it's not a bad thought. I mean, believe me, it it is something that you could do. You're talking about growing the game. You're talking about all this sort of stuff. I mean, you have to think real quick, you'd have to, you'd have to you know, get away from the, the running 12 on the stint meter. I mean, you'd have to go back to sort of an old style of golf where the grass is longer. Yeah, you, you would definitely have to do that. Uh, whatever that is, but you know, nowadays, I mean, wh- what are they cutting fairways at? They're cutting fairways at 500, right? Half an inch. In some places, yeah. Yeah, you know, maybe even less. You know, I think some of them are less. I think the top clubs are probably down closer to 350 or 300 or something. Mm. Uh, you know, greens, you know, at a, at cut at 150 or 200, you know, is, was the norm, whatever that was, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. You know, so you'd be going back a little bit, but there would still be decent, you know, speeds. Uh, I think that, you know, from a a standpoint of interesting or something unique, sure, because you don't, no longer would you need the big, you know, 200 acre parcels. Uh, You could get away with a nine hole golf course, right, where you can mix up where the the, uh, cups are cut, you know, so you could take, 
just a routing that works its way through nine holes or 11 holes, whatever, and then be able to loop back through and have these pins cut in different parts of the fairway or the approaches or wherever it might be and basically create another golf course. Obviously, you can't do a cross-country thing because you've got different people teeing off at different times, but you can definitely go in some sort of circulation pattern, if you want to call it that, uh, and do it. I think the biggest limitation to the whole thing, Derek, would be the, the right property. And I mean, you, you, those properties, you have to find something that was very unique and interesting and has the, the, the sandy soils to be able to accomplish that. One, to get the cutting height from an agronomic standpoint down to something that's modest, green speeds or green height. But two, just being able to cut the cup, uh, be able to have that ability to to uh, to putt on it and all that sort of stuff. Uh, now, I don't know if I'd recommend all nine holes wall-to-wall being able to cut a cup, but you can certainly work certain portions of those fairways that would be the same cutting height that could play as a fairway on your third hole. And then when you come back and play it as number 12, it can be turned to a green. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that could be done, but you know, it's, it's a good idea. It's, you know, it can definitely yeah, it be just done. Came to me. <laughs> but you know, yeah. if you think about these resorts, you know, like, like the cradle, for instance, you know, that that's a unique concept that might not have flown 15 years ago. And now you see things like that at, at sand Valley and Bandon. And I think they're, I think uh, uh, Dave and Rod are going to start building one up at Cabot. And, you know, there are these resorts that were something like, and this is all going back to the idea of just innovation and, and what 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 can golf do to, to continue to be appealing? What's what's just another good, fresh, interesting idea? And, you know, it, it, not saying this could happen. It's I know it's ridiculous, but those are the kind of, th- kind of conversations that I think we're starting to get into in an architecture and design and, and golf is what, what can we do? What What is interesting? What's going to keep this game fresh and, and moving forward? Well, I think like what you're saying and maybe, you know, uh, overall in golf course architecture and everything is, is the preconceived notions, right? Right. If we can all rid ourselves of preconceived notions of what a golf course should be uh, or what it can be, everything, right? It doesn't matter what we're talking about. Like you're saying, it can be an innovation in nine holes, 11 holes, you know, any of that stuff is going to be innovation and no pre- preconceived notion about where the bunkers should go or types of bunkers and, and things like that. I mean, those conversations and those uh, explorations, whether it's done as an entire golf course or it's done part of a driving range or it's done part of something else, to begin working with that and trying to find fun stuff that takes off and, and has merit and all that good stuff, I think needs to be a part of moving forward, right? Needs to be part of everything. Uh, and some of that, I think, will also mean that you have to even go back further, right? Like in some cases, we're talking about, hey, what's the innovation moving forward? Uh, what can happen? But we're talking about, well, green speeds maybe shouldn't be what they are and cutting heights should be less. Well, then you're going back, right? Yeah. Going back to something there. Maybe stymie. Maybe stymie you know, needs to come back in the fun aspect. And maybe clubs need to get away from every day just playing you know, a stroke play with a foursome that goes out there. Right. You know, there's many different options, many different games. And I think ultimately golf just needs to go back to being a game for all of us. It's just play for fun every day and separate it out from the tournaments uh, and the professionals. You know, that that's a totally different game. Basketball. You know, you take a look at basketball. You have three buddies. You know, you can go. You want to play quick. You go out there. you, You know, you play a game of horse or you play 21. Right. You know, there's a lot of things you play, you know. 
you know, one-on-one, two-on-two. You play half court. You play everything. Yeah. You're still playing basketball, right? So why can't golf become the same thing? Hey, we're going to go play golf. You just show up and, you know, you've got some friends. There's three of you that want to go play. You go play. You have an hour and a half. You go play in an hour and a half. You know, you go play from you get home till school till it gets dark. <clears throat> There's no reason why it can't be that way. And it should be that way. It should be enjoyed by everybody. And how that happens or the owner's dedication to being able to separate that out by still, you know, working with you know his mass audience that want to play that stroke play, you know, every Saturday. Uh, or are there gaps where, you know, different games, you know, start early in the morning? Is there, you know, a par three course to become part of the golf course? What's wrong with taking that 18-hole golf course and turning it into 18 par threes and have like a, a two-club, you know, type uh, event where, you know, every birdie you make, you know, there's something for that. And I mean, there's a lot of different games out there that you can do, even on your existing golf course, to get more people to come out and play the game of golf. Uh, I mean, that's for sure. I just think it's getting away from the preconceived notions from an architecture standpoint, from an ownership standpoint, from the director of golf and, and professionals who are operating it and trying to find ways to come up and make the golf course fun yeah. for families and couples and whatever it might be. I mean, they all do a great job at it now, but, you know, there's probably more that needs to be explored. Mm-hmm. Uh for sure. You know, beginning in the in like the 1950s, really, that was when the big push to, to build municipal golf courses and, and pay for play golf courses really started to take off. And it, and it went for, for years and years. And, and they did a really good job of it back then is creating fairly accessible and conveniently located courses for people in most cities and counties to, to get to. And, and then, you know, as we went through the decades, we got farther and farther away from city centers. And now the courses are all out in the suburbs and they're strung through developments. But I have this utopian vision going back to what you were just describing of a, sort of like um, a rebirth of that municipal golf mentality that we used to have. And every, you know, towns where just somewhere in the middle of town, you just have a, maybe like a 40 acre parcel and there, maybe there are six holes on it or something. And, and just, it's just rolling and it's all cut short and you kind of like the cradle, you know, something like the cradle just in the center of, of every single town, you know, where you just walking by and you see kids playing and guys with, with like six clubs on their, you know, over their shoulder coming a guy with a putter and, and a five iron going out. And I know I'm just, I, this is that, um, those gummy bears kicking in again, but it's yeah, like, <laughs> that's just such an appealing uh, thing. And we're, we've been, we got so far away from that idea that you're just explaining about talking about it of how golf can just be simple and it doesn't have to have guidelines. It doesn't have to have rules. It could be anything you want it to be. It can be open, open-ended golf. And that maybe going back to, you know, the beginning of our conversation, that's what, maybe that's what happens. Maybe a lot of these old properties can be repurposed with great levels of creativity and, and thought behind them and trying to get municipalities and public, the public sector behind that as, as golf, as a community good. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. Uh, I'm bullish on golf. But if it became part of an overall park system uh, for communities to, to uh, grasp, I think would be awesome. But you're right. It doesn't have, it can be whatever. It can be, you know, what's the cradle? 10 acres or 12 acres, acres yeah. right? And that's part of an overall community feel where your center of uh, fitness, we'll call it, you know, has a couple basketball courts, a couple soccer fields. Uh, and a place for, for, for kids to go and families to go and enjoy outside and be physical, physically fit and get some exercise and stay away from the video games, I think is a huge thing. 
And I never forget, and I forget exactly where it is on Scott in Scotland, but it was a train ride I used to take from Glasgow on up to Inverness when we were building Castle Stewart. Mm-hmm. Now you're you're half awake because you're flying all night, you know, so you're just kind of looking out the window dazed. Uh, but and I forget what town it was in, but they had a uh, it was almost like a big putting course that they had, and some of the elevation change on it. I remember seeing because it ran up against the train track. It was like 10, 12 feet, you know, uh, and there's holes cut in. I couldn't see it all just because of the way the trees were. But there was also like a merry-go-round and, you know, off to the side. And you could tell it was part of this town, you know, park system and trying to create a sense of community where people can go and enjoy that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I think all that stuff that, that people were doing set aside and, and, you know, maybe it's just, you know, golf is, you know, become you know kind of a negative negative word in some cases and what it means to certain people and uh as opposed to looking at it as a golf is you know is a is a is a physical sport you're outside walking it's not you know 15 year old kids driving golf carts uh that That makes me sick yeah it's disgusting it drives me insane uh but yeah so i mean there's a lot to it and again it's just i think it all goes back to changing the preconceived notions uh, of everything, of the people involved in the towns and what can we do? And is there new strains of grass that don't turn this area into, you know, a, a maintenance nightmare? Uh, you know, what can and cannot be done and teaching people that golf is good so that the course doesn't get vandalized by kids on bikes. You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think, I, I, you know, if you want to narrow it down, in my mind, it's just that. Let's just change all the preconceived notions and leave it open to, you know, shit, look what we're doing with tech, right? Every day there's somebody that's coming up with a tech innovation, you know, something new that's different that people have never seen before or been a part of or it's been a small piece of something else that was developed that became something bigger. Why can't golf have that same, you know, that same innovation? I think we've gotten to the point now here's what I think. I, I think we've gotten to that point now where it's finally possible, but we, it took a, a major market correction, which started um, people who listen to this podcast <laughs> will get tired of me hearing saying this, but you know, it started with Sandhills, which was a, a major correction. And then coming around 2000 with Pacific Dunes and some of those other projects that really took that Sandhill model and applied it more broadly to a resort now. And then that kind of had a trickle out effect and started this last 20 years of this of really high end what you guys are doing. It's really beautiful, thoughtful, strategic, natural rolling, you know, it just introduces all these lost golf concepts and principles. It, it reintroduced that into the market. So after a period of that, we've kind of got a lot of the golf clientele in a good headspace, you know, they, they kind of accept some of these things that they might not have accepted in 1995 when they were expecting something different from golf. So now that we've gotten to this point, it does seem like they're, the time is getting to, to be ripe where we can start to kind of fracture this out further and, and get to these places where, where, you know, you just, you and I have just been talking about where we can change the dynamic, change the vernacular of golf a little bit, but we had to get to this point and get past a lot of other things and other preconceived notions before we can kind of take the next step. Yeah, you're right. We had to get past. So, by, so thank you, by the way, for playing your part in that. Yeah, no, no, no. We had to get past <laughs> the fact that, that, that golf was routed, shitty bad golf was routed between homes, right? We, we needed to get past that. We needed to get past that was the, the thing that people were, you know, visualizing about golf. Yes. Uh, 
for starters. So, you know, people say that golf is dying. X amount of courses were closed. Well, you know what? Maybe they needed to close. You know, not every golf course that was mm-hmm. built was a, uh, uh, of, uh, uh, even a half decent uh, design. You know, it was there as a convenience in order to make up for open space that uh, somebody had to have in order to put a thousand homes on a piece of ground. Or it was a way to con- take water off of a housing development and dump it into a lake and use that lake as part of the golf course. And you know, there's a lot of reasons why some of those golf courses were built. But I, I agree with you. We had to get past a lot of things in order to get where we are now, the economy, uh, you know, people's time. Uh, golf in general. I mean, everything had to come together. So yeah, maybe maybe the time is ripe for that. And places like, you know, Bandon and you know, uh, Sand Valley and you know, uh, what's my call Pinehurst and you know some of the stuff we did at a Hoopy. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's some interesting things that have been brought out. That okay, you know, there is you know something going on. And you know, what's the next step? You know, it's people like that that have been building those sorts of things to be able to dedicate the money towards stuff like that towns to do it for instance like we're talking there's it's all good stuff there's a lot of municipal golf course in a lot of towns and you know maybe they they're the ones too that should be looking at maybe getting some private funding in order to create some interest like we're talking about you know what's wrong with you know say the group we're working with in philadelphia to restore Cobbs creek for them to do some cool stuff within their driving range to create three practice holes uh, that kids can come play with, you know, a couple different green locations in there. So it becomes a, a nine hole par three course, you know, what's wrong with all that sort of stuff. And uh, I think if, if some of our you know governments and things like that can get out of their own way and allow some, you know, private funding to be put into municipal golf courses, you know, I, I think that could be one thing that would really start to change because if people can do that to give back to their community, you know, if it's a corporation or just an individual owner that wants to do something for a community that supported them or that the kids go ahead and, you know, or the parents work for that company or it's just somebody that grew up playing golf there and it changed their lives and uh, they've, they now have, you know, the wherewithal to be able to give, you know, $100,000 to a, a local municipal golf course to build something like that and maybe put some money away as a little bit of an endowment to take care of it. I mean, all that stuff should be looked as positives as opposed to negatives. Um, with one eye kind of on, on our timing right now, I want, I did want to cover this. Uh, you mentioned a Uhupi and yeah. uh, there was somebody on the, on Twitter uh, last week and I forget his name was Andrew. I'm sorry, Andrew, if you're listening, I, I'm sorry. I don't, uh, I didn't, I don't remember your last name, but he wrote a really interesting paper about the, the subject was, were the golf courses of the golden age great because they accommodated match play? That was more of the theme of the day. And when you starting like in the thirties and forties, when the PGA tour starts to become more and more popular and golfers turn their attention to watching guys shoot for score, architecture responded to that kind of in a negative way. Cause now you're trying to defend par rather than just pre- present interesting strategic holes where two people are going to go figure out how to beat the other guy on it. So a hoopy was designed basically for match play. How, did that, how does that free you up as a designer? Can you do things in that situation that you really couldn't always do before? Well, let's start with Andrew. If Andrew's listening, Derek, he's yeah. the only one. He's the only one. <laughs> <laughs> but no, anyhow, uh, it does. I mean, it, it frees you up. Uh, if your thought process is anything but that, 
right? I mean, like we've been talking all along, and the one common theme we've been talking about is just one, you know, no preconceived notions, but two, interest, which I think, you know, preconceived notions probably leads to interest mm -hmm. uh, or lack of interest. Uh, so if you're looking at interest in anything you can do, anything you build, I hope that a majority of our golf holes, whether it's at a hoopie or not, would be considered good match play holes. Hopefully we've done some interest, interesting things out there that create a good match play hole. Obviously you can't always do that depending on the piece of ground and, and how it fits into your overall routing. Uh, but at a hoopy, I mean, a lot of things played into it. One, you know, Michael, the owner, his vision uh, and his freedom to allow us to think outside the box and do something different and do something interesting, I think was part of it. <clears throat> the site was part of it for sure. You know, sandy soils, right. 60, 80 feet deep. You know, you can put holes wherever the hell you wanted to and not have any issues. We weren't bound by constraints of, you know, catch basins and drainage systems, even though there were some people that, you know, had briefly worked on the project that thought that that was needed. You know, it's just, you have to have some of that stuff in order to move what, did forward. Did they get fired for suggesting that? <laughs> Uh, well, they didn't get fired for suggesting that. They got fired for other reasons, but, okay. you know, it was just the overall concept of the individual. I got But you. anyhow, uh, but no, it does. It gives you more freedom because, I mean, we can talk about it in regards, greens, tees, bunkers, it doesn't matter. Talk about it from a tee standpoint. You no longer have to have that defined, hey, this hole from the back tee needs to play 405. From the middle tee, it plays 386. From the forward tee, it plays, you know, 310. You get totally away from that because it allows you to create the freedom of having, let's call them ribbon-type tees that could extend 150 yards long and just kind of sit on a natural contour. And you know what? The tee can be put anywhere it needs to on any given day in that 150, you know, yard span. Mm -hmm. You can do alternate tees on the other side of – the greens instead of walking to the left of the green you can walk back right to then take kind of a relatively straight hole into a dog leg right you know there's a lot of things you can do uh that doesn't that allows it to be match play because you're not hell bent on handicaps you're not hell bent on you know the slope rating and all that kind of stuff i mean the thing when people say you're talking about a new golf course and the first thing that pops out of their mouth is well what's the slope like are you kidding me you know like <laughs> That's like yeah. the least thing we worry about. Or they ask if we, or they ask if we design for that sort of thing, and no, we don't. But you know, so just being able to have that ability that that, that we're free to design whatever we want. Now, still within that match play concept of the hoopie, you can you can have it set up as a golf course with rating and everything that you know applies to all that part of golf. That's not an issue. But if you start with that, then even from a tee standpoint, you can do that. Uh, you look at the greens. Okay, now the greens become more creative. I mean, we started this conversation talking about Thomas. Think about Thomas with his course within a course, right? It, it, we're not really talking about anything much different than that. But you look at a, some of his greens at L.A. North where, you know, uh, the uh, third green kind of looks like a molar. You know, the fifth green has kind of got the same sort of look where you have these awkward-looking pins. Mm -hmm. Well, if you think about that and you say, listen, if we're going to play this golf hole all the way back of that 150-yard 100 span of tees, well, then these are the pin locations that work perfect for playing back there. If you want to play it all the way up, 
you know, play it a heck of a lot shorter so it becomes a drivable or just a drive and a flick, then, you know what, maybe it's this pin location over here to the right, which is on a small little, you know, peninsula that's jutting out and surrounded by bunkers or a natural drop-off, whatever it might be. Well, then the pin goes there, and it plays as a totally different golf hole. So when you start thinking about that and the whole concept, you do that. You can do that as part of it, and then you just start – combining the features in the fairway and, and where you put your bunkering and any kind of bumps or different angles. And again, if you have the right uh, soil structure, and it doesn't matter if this landing area uh, you need to create needs to be 80 yards by 80 yards wide so you can play into these 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 different angles if you play uh, a little bit forward as opposed to back. Uh, and then you combine the different skills of people, you know, how far they hit their golf balls and you know, where they need to play to and how they can navigate their way around, uh, which gets into some width and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But there, there definitely is, uh, you know, some, some freedoms that you're allowed to, uh, to come up with, but it all has to be part of it. I don't think you can take a match play, a total match play concept and stick it into uh, that housing development routing that we were, you know, discussing just a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it may be a little bit too hard to do, but really, you know, when you think about it, in essence, you know, almost every golf hole is a match play hole. You can play match play on any, any, any golf hole anywhere uh, in the country, right? It may oh, not be oh, a yeah. fun match play hole. Played on a, on a putting <laughs> course if you want yeah, yeah. It may not be a fun hole for an average player if he's trying to compete against a uh, a better player, mm-hmm. even if he's getting a stroke or whatever it might be. You know, it doesn't mean it's interesting in that regard. But, you know, every uh, every hole is a match play hole because I know there's people that are going to be listening. They'll say, well, every play is a match play hole. I play match play on my golf course and it doesn't have that. And they're right. Every play, every hole could be a match play. And that's a that's another game that people can play. I mean, we all play it. You know, you pick up if you're, you're you know, your partner's in with a three and you're, you're you know, chipping for a five. What, what's the point of continuing if you're looking for finishing in three hours or two and a half hours, whatever it might be. But I think to have a cool, fun, interesting type, you know, match play course, you, you really need that flexibility. You need the flexibility of everything right down the line. Uh, and that, that's that in our mind is really what that site uh, Michael is the owner and what the concept at a, at a hoopy was. Do you think there's anything to that idea that designers in the golden age, just the, just the understanding that everything was going to, not everything, but match play was such a critical part of the club environment that that somehow colored their ideas of golf design. Is there anything to that notion that they were that influenced the, their thoughts on strategy or width or hazard placement or anything? I'm sure it did, and I'm sure it does. I think, you know, if everybody designing the golf hole thought about it from a match play standpoint, <clears throat> then I think that you you would see a lot more of that interest, right? And again, you talked you touched on it early on about you know it's the guy who's who's designing it. You know, their thoughts on philosophy on golf course design, architecture, whatever we're saying, playability of a golf course, you know, et cetera. <laughs> if they're thinking about it strictly from a match play golf course standpoint, well then, yeah, you'd think that that would go ahead and change their, their thought process uh, on how, on how the golf course is laid out and where things go and, uh, and take it from there. But yeah, I, I don't see why it wouldn't. And you're right. Maybe that is the reason why all those architects, maybe that was the common theme back then was we're playing match play. We're playing all in the shot. We're playing a lot of different games. Right. And, you know, 
let's let's work off of that premise and you know maybe it's changed today in the sense that everybody's just playing stroke play and the preconceived notions that we talked about are such and that's why the design you know influences it yeah i mean there's definitely a lot to that right it's no different than the uh the requirements or objectives that we discussed early on that if that's what's set forth that does change your mind i mean that's part of any design right whether you're building a house or anything else you, you, hey i want an open floor plan <clears throat> i want to be able to in the kitchen have a bar countertop be able to see the big screen tv and my family be right there in front of me okay well yeah, that's what we're going to design get me started for. on open open concept floor plans <laughs> that's just yeah, another you, i'm convinced that the construction industry just pushed that model so that in 20 years when people decide they don't want to be able to look across their kitchen their living room out their front door across the street into their neighbor's living room into their kitchen and see somebody else cooking that so that they'll have work to do in, in 25 years just to board everything up and cre create actual rooms again i'm convinced of that yeah well you're, you're that, that's probably what will happen yeah uh, but uh, it's uh you know, you know what? I actually don't really want to see my little kid over there right now. I want yeah, to be by myself exactly. and have a, be able to sit here and have a conversation without looking at my two-year-old rattling. I, I, want, I want to see the TV. <laughs> you know, but yeah. uh, it's uh, you know, yeah, it's 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 all part of it. But uh, you know, it, it's all good discussions to be having for sure. For sure. So I, I can't let you out of here without this. So you're caveman construction, and we hear about the cavemen all the time. Who are the cavemen? I'm assuming that it's a, a, a rotating band of, of guys and shapers that you work with are, are is that true or are there you know, fixed fixed satellite points fixed points in the, in the constellation of cavemen well they're all watching guys we picked up hitchhiking uh yeah and they uh <laughs> they no place to go so they decided to work with us uh no i mean the, the caveman concept and and everything is just it's it's the team that you know has supported us and really helped us deliver everything that we've done. It's practicing architecture in the field, right? The way we do and the way that a lot of the old guys did it. Right. Uh, may, they weren't on bulldozers back in 1927, but they were on property all day long. Now, some of them were just sitting underneath a tree drinking, but they were there pretty <laughs> much every single day. It's the job I want. <laughs> but yeah, right. So if we're practicing that that's our philosophy is we're designing in the field okay it's naive to think that gil and myself you know can come up and do every last thing on the golf course right it's impossible nobody can do that you you can't uh for the the timeline of projects the costs related to them and things like that you need a very good team to help support your endeavors uh to do that to help you be able to realize things in the field, to push dirt around, to set, you know, landforms that start to give you inspiration to be able to work further along with, you know. So in our mind, you know, they are probably one of the most important things uh, to the success is to have a group of guys that do uh, this type of work that are very, very talented in their own right. I mean, if, you know, one of your questions you asked me, you know, legacy stuff, you know, in the email is that, hey, if I was known as being part of a, you know, uh, of a of a company or a firm, uh, design firm that you know was able to allow these younger guys to work with us and eventually go on to do some really cool stuff on their own, 
you know, kind of like you're saying, you know, you know, revolutionize things, do things. If we can give those people the tools to become successful on their own and they go on to do some really great stuff on their own, to me would really be the biggest compliment that could come from all this stuff because it's just – I think it's important to be able to, to nurture them and let them move on and do some really good stuff, and they should. They should move on, and every time we have conversations with our guys – some of them are, you know, guys that are just really enjoy, you know, pushing dirt and being on the dozer, and and that's what their their incentive is, and that's what makes them tick, and that's their passion, and that's great. You know, we have guys that you know want to go do their own thing eventually, uh, and we want to help them go do their own thing. And when you know these guys work with us, and you know, most of them are full time working for us, just because of, of the the projects we have and have had in the past that we can do that with them. Some guys come job to job and may work a job a year or six months or four months a year and go do some other stuff. But the one thing I tell all these guys that are looking to do more uh, in their career and be a part of you know something on their own or other people, I say, listen, if you have other jobs or other opportunities, whether it's on your own or a great opportunity to go work for another architect on a real unique site, that they're going to grow and learn as an individual that allow them to accomplish their goals in life, I tell them to do it, to take it. I mean, we have some criteria that, you know, that they need to finish certain aspects of our job or give us enough time because there's a lot of people out there that can fill their roles or, you know, myself and Gil being that, you know, we're still very, you know, heavily involved in shaping and being on machines. If somebody has to leave our job that's excavator heavy <clears throat> and because they have an opportunity, to go work on another project that's going to be longer or grow them as individuals, you know, then just give us the proper time. I'll clean up some of my other work and I'll go there and I'll take over for them while they move on and do something on else in their lives. I think that's, that's a huge thing. So we have a cross section of those guys and they're a cross section from around the world. You know, we've got guys from Australia, Ben's from Australia, Neil's from uh, Northern Scotland. Uh, Josh is from Canada. You know, we've got guys, Seamus is from, you know, northern uh, California, Brent's from Florida, uh, you know, it can go on, Brett's from Philadelphia, you know, uh, Kyle's from wherever Kyle's from, probably Mars. Uh, we're really not sure, you know, when Kyle was working with us. But, you know, we're very fortunate in that regard to have a lot of really good people. And, you know, we want them to grow. We want them to be a part of our work. But I also really want them to learn as much as they can with us so they can go on and do whatever they want to do, you know, in their own lives. All right. Just to, just to kind of bust some balls and put some names out there, which of these guys that you work with either uh, part of your regular crew or, or uh, contract shapers, who's the biggest pain in the ass to work with? Jesus Christ. The biggest pain in the ass has to be fucking Jaeger. <laughs> Jaeger Kovic, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, Jaeger's a pain in the ass. What's Kyle's his big, what's his big deal? Well, I mean, <laughs> just well, who he is. His, yeah, well, you know, it's it's who he is, and there's reasons for why we all who we are, right? Uh, Jaeger's extremely talented. You know, the guy can get a lot done. He's very passionate. You know, he's very good on the machine, all sorts of stuff like that. But you know, sometimes people have short fuses uh, with things, and and they get too emotionally tied to stuff, or too worried <laughs> about contractors and what they're doing. And instead of the teaching aspect to it, you know, it becomes something other than that. 
uh, and you try to curtail that. And a guy like Jaeger, you know, when he first started working with us, was of that ilk. But to his credit, you know, I think, you know, he, he saw that and we've tried to beat the shit out of him to, to know that that's not, you know, you know, a good part of going and moving and becoming your own architect, you know, uh, but he's, he's come definitely a long way with us in, in his career, you know, throw his name out there. Uh, you know, Kyle, when he was working us, with us, you know, he was a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> the radio project, you know, you know, it's so, and it's just, it's just so, sometimes you're there every day. So I don't want to say that, you know, it's a daily thing, but when you work on a project and you're there six, eight, 10 months and you're at it six days a week and sometimes you need to be able to have freedoms, you know, and, you know, you're given a little bit of a, you know, of a, you know, a, a hall pass because certain things happen. And that's just the nature of the business. You know, you're passionate, you're sweating your ass off. You know, the, the air conditioning is not working in the machine. It's 110 degrees out. The contractor just fucked up something that, you know, you thought was important. Uh, you know, there's things like that. Uh, with Kyle's case, you know, in Rio, it's like, uh, hey, Kyle, you know, we're heading to lunch. Okay, let's go to lunch. Well, can you talk to Neil about cranking on the water to that green site you're working on so that uh, when you come back, you can continue to work, you know, because it's too dry. Eh, I'll get that later. We'll get that later. Well, you come back for lunch. You just wasted an hour and a half. Now you got to put the water on. So the water goes on for half an hour. And then Kyle decides after the water goes off, now it's time to go take a shit. Right? So now he's and, – and he can't go – he can't take the dump in the uh, porta potty He's got to go back to the house. So he goes back to the house. And then an hour later, he comes back. And, you know, before you know it, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and now he's just getting on a, a green site, which he should have been on at one fifteen. <laughs> so there's things like that as far as, you know, people being a pain in the ass. Uh, but it's usually not the stuff in the field. It's all the ancillary stuff, you know, around the field stuff. And, you know, uh, you know, hey, I had to make two cell phone calls, and, you know, uh, here's an invoice for the cell phone calls or you know, I, I decided to buy the workers' lunch, uh, and they want to be reimbursed for buying, you know, three workers, you know, Boston chicken or something. <laughs> well, what the, I didn't fucking tell you to go buy a Boston chicken. I mean, it was a nice gesture, but, you know, we're not set up as a big, you know, firm that needs to have people in the office to verify, uh, you know, uh, expense reports and shit like that. Uh, you know, so it's just, it's stuff like that. It's that annoying thing where it's like, you know what? You're paid a lot of money to do stuff. Now, just just go do it. <laughs> so, that's the kind of pain in the ass stuff that happens. This whole conversation <laughs> was worth it just to get to that Kyle story. How <laughs> yeah. Well, does Kyle even know how to uh, get on uh, a podcast? I think somebody somebody told him how to recently. He's figured it out. Oh well, that's good. I guess. <laughs> I just who else can we who else can you embarrass? <laughs> Uh, well, none of those guys would be listening because I know half of them could never find a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you'd be, I think you'd be surprised. They'll be, they'll be tuning into this one, I promise. Uh, yeah. All right. Oh, well. Jim, is there anything else you want to talk about? No, no. Uh, no put, put, we can't talk about something that's probably a taboo on this uh, feed the ball. <laughs> Although well, in, I, in, in some cases, you are feeding the ball. But <laughs> yeah, that would no, be the first good. time that that uh, that topic came up. Yeah, but no, uh, no, uh, all good. Okay, all let good. me. So yeah. I ask everybody this: uh, 
not every, almost everybody I ask this qu- question, and I'm kind of taking an informal poll. Uh, what's the best modern golf course that you've seen that you haven't been involved building? Uh, the best I've seen that I haven't built. Yeah. Shit, I was all prepared to say a hoopy. It does. Uh, you know. def- define modern. How far back? Post Sand Hills. Because I get so much. I, Sand Hills is running away with this thing. So let's say, let's say uh, so, after Sand so. Hills. So you made you made it post Sand Hills. Yeah, just to you know, just to keep it interesting. I'm tr- I'm trying to think. You know, I, I don't I don't want to shortchange some places, uh, and it can't be something we've done. So you know that uh, that destroys that. And I have to have actually physically been there and seen it. I, you don't have to, I guess. Uh, let me see. That's that's a freaking hard question. Everybody uh, struggles Sand, with Sand this. Hill, well, Sand Hills, everybody goes ahead. And, I mean, they just they just mail that in. Yeah, I agree. Uh, by, I mean, it could be even uh, if it's Sand true. Hill. It's it's not creative. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, it, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, it is true. It's a, it's a it's a great place. But uh, let me think. Let me think about where I've been recently. See, most of the places I go are, are tend to be the older uh, the older clubs uh, that I find the most interesting. I like uh, this question because you. you you can either kind of like pay a compliment to one of your contemporaries or you can, you know, take the opportunity to <laughs> take a shot at him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, believe me, I, I love all the stuff that Bill and Ben do. There's, there's a lot of good points to all the golf course. The same thing with Tom. I think Tom does some great work. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I have no problem giving any of their uh, work compliments. That's for sure. I'm just trying to think of something that, you know, I've seen that, you know, maybe others haven't seen or that like somebody in the case that you don't hear a lot about right. that has done. Uh, that is something, you know, special or something different along the lines that we're talking about. Uh, you know, I, I know the stuff that Tom did at the reversible golf course, uh, I think is, you know, is a great concept. I've never seen it. Uh, so I, you know, I can't, you know, refer to that. Uh, just because I haven't been there, but you know, if it goes along the the preconceived notion thing that we were talking about and something different, then you know, that's uh, something pretty strong uh, right there. Uh, that is different. Uh, but as far as that, I don't. I'm trying. I'm kind of working my way in my mind across the uh, country. Okay, you going uh, west to east or east to west? I was going east to west, uh, and, and kind of zigzagging oh. my way down through. Okay. Uh, you know, crossed the Mississippi it. yet? I haven't crossed the Mississippi yet. No, <laughs> I've, got, I've got to narrate this while you're thinking. <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck in Watchamacall. I'm stuck Jim is in over Kentucky. Kentucky right now. I'm stuck. I am. I'm stuck in Kentucky, and I got. I have nothing. <laughs> I, I think most people can kind of skip right past Kentucky. Yeah, unless not you're going to say Valhalla, but I don't think that's going to come up. No, no, no. It's definitely not going to come up. Uh, I don't know. You, you guiding me to some place? Oh, no. 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 This is your... Or you, can, you, can just, you can just say I stumped you. I finally asked something that you didn't have an answer to. Well, you do, because I got all these different thoughts of what we've talked about, you know, in the past seven hours that we've been on this podcast. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm trying to think of something that ties in to what we've been discussing as well. Uh, that would be, uh, you know, kind of bring it all together. Uh, you know what somebody said? Um, 
I wasn't in this conversation, but somebody brought up the sandbox uh, up at Sand Valley. So that would be like a, a or the you know you you could have said the cradle, but you you know you built that. But something like yeah. the sandbox, which is you know, 17 holes. So it's not 18. It's not nine. Uh, it's just nothing's longer than 135, 40 yards. It's all just pitch and bump and runs. No, no. I mean, that, that concept like we were talking about, I think is great. You know, I think that's, that's an awesome, you know, thing that's out there. And again, anything to do to get away from those preconceived notions and, and get more people interested in the game of the golf and just go out there and have fun. I think is huge. Uh, but you know, new stuff, I don't know. I mean, there, there's, I'm trying to think where I've been. I don't get out much, you know, I'm too busy working all the time to be able to go visit all these places. Yeah. You're in France, you're in Thailand, you're coast to coast. There's nothing in Thailand that's worth anything. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Right. No. Well, yeah, not yet. Well, hopefully what we do is, is something good. Uh, now I'm, I'm cruising through Ireland. Uh, if there's any place I've been there. Uh, that has been interesting. Uh, I'm going to say no. Uh, King, Kings Barnes has had well, one or King, two. Yeah, King, Kings Barnes is, is 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 really good. You know, if that is uh, post Sandhills, I, I think Kings Barnes is is a uh, is a great example. I mean, too bad you gave me that example. Uh, Not selfish. You can have being it. something you know good. <laughs> if you I just mean, want to get, get out of this with that. You can say so. Uh, I mean, I mean, you you could say you know the band and golf courses. You can say. Uh, you know, all the stuff abandoned, I think is great. I mean, Tom's golf course abandoned, I think is awesome. Uh, Pacific did you ever Dune, play the sheep ranch? The sheep ranch I've, uh, I've been on, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, been around it. We've never played it, but I've uh, walked the property a couple times. Uh, but that, that's a fun concept. And that was, you know, much earlier than a lot of stuff that, that we talked about for, you know, in this conversation, yeah. uh, that, that is really cool. Yeah, I mean, all those places, anything like that that's going to remote, remote areas like Cabot's, you know, both uh, stream song golf courses, uh, you know, if if we can throw those in the hat, I think are all very, very good and interesting and great for the game of golf, uh, for sure, uh, is all part of it, you know. So, I mean, there's a lot of them, and, you know, I could easily say Pacific Dunes, I could easily say, you know, uh, some of you know caller stuff you know that is cool that we see a lot of uh but i i don't know if, if there's one that that sticks out hey you know i'll say trump's place in uh in scotland i'll, I'll get back on the good side okay yeah all right i'm sure now i'm sure he's listening <laughs> yeah right yeah yeah we actually didn't, say, we didn't even say anything that bad about him no well it was all true everything we said everything i said was true i mean it was so i, I can't you know hide from that uh <laughs> But uh, I don't know. Okay. Pick out, pick out, pick out one for me, and then you put it on the podcast. All right, I'll I'll, I'll decide on the uh, on here. the outro that I record. Yeah, there, there there there's a lot of great stuff out there. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't really want to say one over the other or just take the common common ground. You know. God. All right. Well, we'll we'll leave it at that then. Uh, maybe yeah. to be like, determined. Like one of those questions too, that like uh, from that uh, that guy that interviewed all the stars uh, on A and E. You know, what's your favorite curse word? You know? <laughs> yeah. No, that this is my version of that. I don't I don't have a list of like six or seven of them, but I the the golf course one is when I, I try to mix in as much as I can. Yeah. Yeah, what was yeah. that guy's name? Inside the actor's studio. Is yeah, inside the actor's James, studio. James yeah, yeah. James something, yeah. Used yeah. to watch that. <laughs> yeah, mine would be What's your favorite swear I'll ask you this, what's your favorite curse word? 
Yeah, well, my favorite curse word is dickhead. <laughs> right? Yeah. See, that's original. I yeah, he's a fucking dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> I, bet the, I bet the guys who work for you have heard that a few times. <laughs> Not about yeah. them, just in general. Definitely have, uh, right. for sure. No, sometimes we say it right to them, you know. <laughs> but anyhow. Yeah, well, listen, Jim. Uh, cool. This, this uh, thanks for doing this. I hope you had a yeah. good time. I hope I, I hope you didn't did. uh, ruin your. I know you don't do a lot of you know podcasts and media. I hope I didn't ruin it for you and send you back into hiding again for years. No, well, yeah, uh, you know, I don't. I, I have a real, you know, I don't listen to podcasts because I'm one of those guys that can't find them. <laughs> no. Well, the good thing about podcasts is uh, this is all on the record. So this is two hours over two hours of nothing but Jim Wagner unfiltered. Two hours of unfiltered bullshit. Those are the best podcasts, though. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, I'll circle back with what my uh, favorite modern golf course is one of these days. Yeah, like I said, to be determined. We'll have to maybe do this again sometime. Yeah, no worries. Anytime. Okay, so I did follow up with Jim about his favorite modern golf course. And, and do you know what he said? He said Rockway Hunt Club, a golf course that was built in the 1800s. <laughs> And then he said, either that or Top Golf. So, so this is what we're dealing with here. I actually thought that was a, a really fun and entertaining conversation. I hope you did too. Um, Kyle France probably didn't enjoy that <laughs> very much. Um, sorry about that, Kyle, but I think you had to know that was coming. But anyway, thanks again to Jim Wagner. Uh, maybe we'll do that again sometime. That was great. Um, if you have not read or looked at or you do not order McKellar Magazine, I encourage you to do so. It's a showcase of some of the, the best golf writing that you can find. It's published a couple times a year. Long-form journalism, really in-depth stories, very creative, uh, great presentation. It's, it's everything that we should all be supporting in golf. It's not mainstream. It's not advertiser-driven. It's just good golf stories from good golf writers. Um, uh, I've got a story coming out, a profile on Dave Axland, which was one of the most rewarding things that I've I've done in my writing career so far is just to be able to get to know Dave and develop a relationship with him and, and talk about who Dave Axland is. He's, he's probably the most unknown known name in golf, and I hope this profile helps introduce him to a wider audience and let everybody get to know him better. But you can check out McKellar at McKellarMagazine.com. That's M-C-K-E-L-L-A-R. That's how you spell McKellar. And please do uh, check it out and support that valuable, valuable, excellent magazine. I'd also like to encourage you to support this podcast by going to iTunes and giving the show a star rating. You may also, if you're inclined, leave a review. Also, give me a follow on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at FeedTheBall. If, you see, if you're on Twitter and you see me post a, a new podcast episode, do me a favor and retweet it or give it a like or a comment. Uh, that will help me out quite a bit. One last program note. You can also find uh, Feed the Ball, the podcast, and the uh, Feed the Ball website now at TalkingGolf.com. Um, I've joined forces, so to speak, with Rod Morey and the State of the Game and the I Seek Golf podcast and the Talking Golf podcast, which features the new uh, history episodes uh, with Rod and Connor Wood. We're trying to experiment with a new golf podcast platform. So that's at TalkingGolf.com. Um, go ahead and do that. Subscribe to all those podcasts. You don't want to miss any of those episodes. And, and we'll see how this, this goes and keep you abreast of our new developments there. But just in general, I want to thank you as usual for all your support. Thanks for listening. Shout out to the Sundogs. Thanks for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, take care and adios. Adios.